0: Welcome to episode 10 of Looking Down the Literary Gun Barrel with Bowman and the BFG. Today we are talking all about The Spy Who Loved Me.
1: It's Josh over here in Ottawa.
0: And it's Bowman, Scott over here in Scotland. And yeah, we're here to talk about the 10th book in Ian Fleming's chronology of James Bond, his character. We've had nine previous episodes, finishing most recently with Thunderball. And now we're on to something of an experiment Something controversial, you might say, in the Spy Who Loved Me.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I was definitely shocked at the absence of a certain white lotus esprit in in, uh, in this book,
0: to mm-hmm. be honest with you. And a parachute uh, not, to, not
1: to mention a lot of the entire narrative, and just just goes to show. Um, I think I think many people who haven't read the Spy Who Loved Me will be really surprised by. Uh, how different it is from the film version. How there's not even a trace of of, of, of that in, of, of any of any aspect in the storyline mm-hmm. uh, that was taken from the novel whatsoever in the film. And when we're here talking about the books and whatnot, but at the same time, it's it's pretty dis- it's pretty distinct difference when you, when you say Scott.
0: Yeah, it's 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 pretty remarkable, and there's reasons for it, and we'll get into those when uh, I talk about its publication and uh, and all of that, but. Um, this is a real strange story, and it has, <clears throat> for better or for worse, and we will talk about it, it has a place, perhaps the place, within the, uh, the the Fleming oeuvre to be considered the worst James Bond novel.
1: I would say, in terms of a James Bond novel, it is definitely, you could quali- could qualify it as the worst.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, uh, there that, are
1: aspects that I liked about it, and aspects I have... Feel, different feelings for but and when it comes to the formula that we've established over the past you know the past novels that we've been discussing, uh, I found our angle our, our rating systems, adversaries and allies, narrative, uh, the girl, the locale, the equipment uh, I found a, that was very difficult to apply to this particular novel and yeah. it's it definitely it's definitely unorthodox that's for sure.
0: It is unorthodox, but it's important, I think, that we get out there just at the beginning that yes, although the style, the struct, oh, the, the style, not so much perhaps, but the structure of the story is much different uh, in a narrative form than the previous Bond novels we've had. This is still a James Bond story, and right. and um, I don't think that our angle is really jeopardized too much. Uh, I I didn't have too much difficulty in rating this book according to our angle. Um, there were yeah. certain, there are certainly things about it when you think about equipment and because Bond isn't in it the whole time that you're you're kind of wondering okay how does this work but I think I managed to uh, broadly do it and I'm happy with what I've done so yeah I mean did you did this cause you some problem? a little bit
1: but uh, what really caused me some problems is when I was going over my notes is that um, on my on my uh, word processor and on my laptop computer here which is a few years old uh, I admit. Uh, my letter V key is no longer working. So in context, well, I'll be working with the title of the spy who load me In <laughs> uh, uh, her angle we will be dealing with the adversary uh, and allies and the narrative. It sounds like some sort of like pompous French word that intellectuals use or something <laughs> like that. And there's a French girl. Well, French-Canadian girl. I guess does not even count, I suppose.
0: Well, it kind of no, does.
1: French- oh, no offense no, to French-Canadian girls, but I mean... Uh, Fleming talks about the distinctive differences between French Canadians and Parisian French. So, does. Uh, and we allu- and, and, and being from Canada, we understand you know that aspect of our culture. And of course, the main character. Uh, now, in the novel, she is called Vivienne Michelle. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this regard, uh, I will be calling her E E N Michelle.
0: <laughs> yeah, the lack of V is going to hurt you throughout the night, buddy.
1: The lack of V is going to hurt me throughout the night, but I'll forbear.
0: You will, of course, you will um and you'll do uh you'll do an airy airy good job of it yes that that deserves an applause or something a tip of the hat even
1: Uh, airy airy yeah you can't see the reaction that i had kind of like a raised eyebrow slight smirk just to those who are listening
0: so i'll take what i can get yeah okay buddy so yeah the spy who loved me um you want to talk about his publication or shall i talk about his publication then you'll rock in with your plot summary and then we'll we'll hit our discussion and our angle
1: yeah, I'll just kind of open with the idea that uh, basically this novel, as you'll get into, is uh, this is told through the perspective of the, of the girl. Um, if you think about our angle, the, the girl, you know, the, the, the Bond girl um, is, is, is the viewpoint in which we're viewing this story. Um, it is through her first-person narrative that we experience the James Bond phenomenon. And boy, do we experience it.
0: We do, <laughs> yes. We, we, we certainly do experience it. And uh, with, with that, I think I'll just jump into some information. Now, I mean, for those of you who are just picking up on this, our series, Josh and I always give up publication information followed by a short plot summary. Not always short, but um, sometimes very necessary to be longer. And uh, then we move on and we talk about our angle, which is, as Josh has already intimated, uh, based on the acronym uh, for Adversaries, Allies, narrative plot pacing structure etc g for girls and the female characters l for locales or locations both internal and external and e for equipment so each of those different variables is given a mark from one to five in how we see it operating and how we enjoy its placement and its kind of um, existence in the novel that we're discussing and then we get from that an overall ranking for the book. And while this is not meant to be um, <clears throat> an expert's ranking, uh, or sorry, the the most expert way of doing something, uh, of ranking a story necessarily, it is uh, the way that we are we're going about this series to get an index for scoring. And after we're finished with this retrospective, we're going to. Um, have a, an episode or two where we talk about our rankings um, using not just our scoring index but also some of our feelings and it'll, it'll be it'll be a good uh, summary to it all and Josh I don't know if you're aware of this buddy but I mean we, we've been doing this for 10 months now we are almost at a one-year anniversary that's pretty crazy to think about it
1: I mean I'm normally a pretty uh, I, you know when I read a book I if I have a lot of time I can, I can cover a lot of books at a certain amount of time right so if we had done this, like if this was like a, a bi monthly thing that we did, you know, like it, we we would have already been done on we've been done already. But I think the pacing that we've been taking has been pretty leisurely, but it's also been very effective. I think in creating a good discussion each time that we do
0: it. Yeah. Right. Well, I'm...
1: Uh, I will counter though. I did create a V. Um, oh, good. I, I managed. To, I managed to basically find the forward slash and the backslash on my keyboard, and I and I was able to do create a V. Well, that's good. So, so any additional notes that I, I you know that I might make, you know that I might want to discuss, you know regarding Vivian now it'll be it will take additional it'll be additional effort, but now by having the forward slash and the and the uh, and the backslash together, I've managed to create a V in that capacity. So uh, a, this will service us our needs, and it will also remind me that I need to get a new computer or something anyways.
0: Yeah, you should get on that. You should get yeah. yourself a new computer uh, sooner rather than later, I think.
1: But I, I think EEN is pretty funny, and I don't know. I was thinking of <laughs> maintaining that. Well, uh,
0: we'll see how we'll that, see how funny it is close. once we've been talking about it for thirty minutes.
1: Well, yeah. I'll, I'll I'll let you be you be the judge of when this horse has been more than just been beaten <laughs> but also been like
0: eviscerated, like roadkill across the uh, the highway you know the highway of our conversation I, w- I will do that. Um, look buddy the Autobahn of our conversation if you will the Autobahn okay good shout we've got nine of these conversations and books behind us I think that we always say oh we'll talk about you know where we've been and how we've been going but we rarely get there and if we do it's kind of rushed and not not very good I mean I've, I've got our scoring so far right in front of me and I'd like to go back to January 10th and talk about Casino Royale very briefly move through all of them because um, <clears throat> no I don't want to go back and talk about the books I just want to go over a summary of our of our ranking so far to put this conversation into maybe the proper context for just how big and ambitious a project this was because you know we started this about this time last year no it wasn't quite it would have been november december where we entertained the idea of going through the bond stories together and just having little chats about them and as the conversation about what we wanted to do grew it became obvious that we were going to need a um a posterity format. We wanted something that could record or, or hold on to these conversations and to share with people should they have an interest like ours in James Bond and literary fiction. So on January 10th, we came together after reading Casino Royale over the Christmas holidays, and that was our first conversation in review. And you and I were pretty close on that book. I liked it, um, surprisingly, uh, one mark more than you did in total. I gave it an index of 18.5 out of 25. For the five it was, components. It's it
1: interesting because we definitely had a bit of a, uh, a, a not, not, uh, uh, we kind of had like a bit of an impasse when it when it came to like the the uh, the, the, the the
0: the climax and the denouement. Mm-hmm. We did indeed, um, and you gave it a seventeen point five. We then moved on to live and let die, with which which was on the fourteenth of February, a book that we both recorded as saying we really enjoyed. Um, mm-hmm. We, I gave it a mark of 20 out of 25, and you 21.5. Uh, we then moved on a month later, the 19th of March, to discuss the third book, Moonraker, which you liked two and a half marks more than me. You gave it a 19.5. I gave it a 17. Um, and then Diamonds Are Forever came in April, when you and I both uh, were almost right on the mark with 20 and 20.5. You just edged it a little bit more there on the equipment than I did. And From Russia With Love, 21.5 from me, 22.5 from you for that May conversation, a book that we both really liked, and probably Fleming's, up to that point at least, his most taut and serious, if I can use that word. Yes,
1: absolutely. Yeah, taut is a good way to describe it. Uh, um, It's also in in an orthodox kind of design that he had. We're kind of seeing, I think, beginning with From Russia With Love, a sort of a trend of, of Fleming experimenting with the form of his, of his narrative and how he tells it. You, we, you know, we have like Rush of love, which was the first half of the novel or almost two quarters of the novel. Anyways, uh, is devoted to the, um, the Russian perspective on the whole operation uh, going against MI six and bond. And the latter half is of course, you know, bond being brought into the story a hundred pages in. Right. Mm-hmm. And we have this similar function occurring in the spy who loved me. Um, but for but it's but it's almost as, as if it's like the first half of the book is a, a quite different type of story than the perspective of the Russian KGB yeah. um and Smirsch, uh, as, as opposed to you know relating to Vivian's um, experience leading up to the arrival of Bond in the narrative.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think we well, there's a, another thing too when Bond comes into the story, he gives, a, an explanation for why he is where he is, uh, which is not dissimilar to aspects of From Russia with Love. So I think when we get into talking about this one, um, we'll, we'll maybe go back into there. But anyway, uh, yeah, after From Russia with Love, Dr. No, and uh, we were both pretty close on that. I liked it at a 20, and you at a 21. Uh, Goldfinger was our conversation for July, if I'm correct. Yep, July. And uh, that was, uh, again, only 0.5 in the difference. And... again
1: that I found too goldfinger was one of those stories that I think that we I think I, I think if we could ever do a, if we could possibly go back in time in our you know Wells esque time machine and I really think we we would be able to uh, do that one over again in a different way that's one show I would like to have, to have redone I think just because we could have had time to reflect on Goldfinger as a whole you know because there's some really interesting um, storylines in there and I think just because coming coming from it fresh and how different it was from like the uh what are we what what i expected you know from the story and, and whatnot and uh i just think is that um, an- another approach on goldfinger w- w- would have been interesting
0: mm-hmm. yeah i mean it wasn't a bad ca- it wasn't a bad conversation it's just no, uh, no no anyway right uh then we had for your eyes only the um short stories. We read those in August, and that was an interesting experience for us. We rated each of them according to its own respective angle, and then from there got an index overall. And uh, It wasn't a great favorite among us in general, though a couple of the stories were standout. You went 19, I went 17.5. Thunderball picked us both back up a little bit last month in September, and you were 22.5, one of your, if I believe, the second greatest scoring of any of the Bond books to date. And I was at a 20. Um, now, the reason I... Sorry, go ahead.
1: I was going to say, it was just interesting that because I think, like, you know, there's... For Rush of Love and... Uh, For Rush of Love, um, Live and the Die, and I think Thunderball, I think, to me, are, like, my... I think are my top three so far in the, uh, in all the novels that, we, that
0: we've that we discussed. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see where, where this one is, The Spy Who Loved Me. And <laughs> I think it's also important that... If, if not for anyone who's listening, then for ourselves, that we reiterate this point, you know, that while you and I share a love of James Bond, we don't necessarily uh, aim to find similar scores with these stories. It's just that we, we happen to pick out certain things, and, and some of the mathematics adds up in very different ways. We may come close to having a similar score, but our reasons for it could be very different, as the angle has shown.
1: The the, the Powellian al- algorithm. <laughs> Well, it's
0: also a ta- no. It's not. It's mine, isn't it? It's, um,
1: it, it really, really is. Oh is. yeah, <laughs> I, my mathematics is dire, so I'm not. Okay. That, that's all on you, my friend.
0: All right. Okay. Well, um, my speaker there just shut itself off, telling me that we've been prattling on enough about the reviews uh, in the past. It's time to get on with the spy who loved me from today. Uh, publication history on this Fleming's porous novel. I don't know that we're going to agree with that, but certainly that's the reputation that it has coming into this conversation. It was published, um, this is the first one to be released in the United States before uh, UK. 11th of April, 1962, Viking publishes it, and Jonathan Cape follows up five days later on the 16th of April in 1962 in
1: the UK. That's indicative already of, I think, of what they were, that this was something that, you know, it's kind of like nowadays where they don't screen movies for the for, 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 for the press for certain films. They they yeah.
0: just,
1: and then you and then once the film's released, then you get the bad bad reviews appearing. Right. That's right. Yeah. So it it it, it just kind of seems like uh, they kind of knew that they had something there that was possibly controversial and very different from what people would would have expected, and they they were really expecting a very negative reaction to the story. And I, I guess they decided to. Jump the American market before the British market. Well, the <clears throat> unless there's another explanation for that, and if, and if you know that, then, then I mean,
0: no, I, 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 I don't know. Means. I don't know why it was given that release. I mean, I, I was thinking, I was thinking perhaps um, that because Bond was at this point uh, a film series, right? Doctor No had or was about to be released, had been or was about to be released. Um, maybe it, I don't know. There were more. Um, more, I don't know, just a, just an attempt to do something different for the American market, I'd, to co-release with a film. I, I really don't know. I wasn't able to find out why it had five extra days because it seems like such an arbitrary thing from a publication history.
1: What was the year of publication again? It was... Uh,
0: 1962, April. 62. Okay, 62.
1: Yeah, it's kind of curious to see because was it 63, Was that the same year that Kennedy announced that From Rush of Love is one of his favorite novels?
0: It would either have been that year or the year after because he died in sixty three, right?
1: Yeah, at uh, late sixty
0: three, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know yeah. when that. I don't know when that presidential list was published because it was it was part of a list, wasn't it? That he 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 made a. I don't know if it was an interview or an article that was published, but it wasn't sort of an off the cuff comment. the The fact that From Russia with Love was one of Kennedy's favorite books was publishable was is a publishable fact that came from some sort of list of the president's favorite books, right?
1: Yes, that's correct. It was like a kind of one of those modern things I have nowadays, like what, what's Obama's favorite television show and all this kind of stuff, right? It's that, it was that same kind of kind of concept, uh, pulp culture through the president's view and kind of showing him as a man of the people in that way.
0: Yeah, I guess so. Anyway, you're thinking that that might have had something with something to do with the fact that Viking threw this book out before Jonathan Cape? Possibly. I'm,
1: I'm just kind of theorizing about anything, to, to be honest. Right. We're well, just, let's, let's, just, you.
0: in the spirit of brevity, then um, we'll leave that question lingering because it's not a really a hugely important one for our discussion. But uh, all empowerment,
1: all empowerment to the spirit of brevity. Continue. <laughs> uh,
0: this is the shortest and definitely the most sexually explicit of Fleming's novels. Um, very poor reception, almost from the get-go, and Fleming tried to suppress parts of this story. He blocked a UK paperback of this book and only gave permission for Saltzman and Broccoli to use the title, not the plot, which is why so very little of it, with the with, with the exception of maybe uh, one of the villains in this story, one of the thugs, has got um, silver cap teeth. That might be the only connection that stretches out into the, the film franchise, but... Um, yeah, dude. Yeah, yeah,
1: that's true. I didn't think about that too. Yeah. It's like Jaws, but neutered.
0: <laughs> very, very <laughs> neutered. Yes. Um, anyway, Fleming claimed, right? He claimed that the novel was was meant to be an experiment. And the reason he wanted to try this is because he was feeling as though... Now, I don't know if this is total bullshit, if this is something that comes out after you realize your novel is shit, and, or that it's being received as shit, uh, and you're, you're trying to think of a of an excuse to kind of cover yourself. But... I don't really think he needs to. Like, at this stage in the game, if the novel's shit, okay, fine, the novel's shit. He's given us nine stories with this character before. You're not going to hit the jackpot and the target every single time. As much as you and I, and perhaps America and, and Britain at the time, liked James Bond and the character, and as much as they were getting G'd up for a film franchise, I mean, you don't you don't buy a book and put your brain on the shelf when you take the book off. Like, you, you got to give the author a chance to fuck up once in a while, right?
1: Absolutely. And because, I mean, making mistakes, you know, it creates experience and, and then they learn different lessons and they're able to take that experience and the negative reaction from it and, and shape it into something much more positive and interesting and uh, seasoned, you
0: know? Yeah, totally. And, and we'll have to hold that comment that you, you uttered there because On Her Majesty's Secret Service is our next novel up. And so that could be the rebound of all rebounds. Definitely. <laughs> Any, anyway, we'll, we'll wait and see because I'm, I'm still not happy to, to toss this book onto the fire pit. But anyway, yeah, so he, he claimed that this was an experiment because he didn't like the way that a lot of young people were, particularly young schoolboys, were, uh, were kind of getting their teeth sunk into bond and all the sex and all the, the violence and that kind of stuff. And so he called this, and I quote, a cautionary tale. And he, he wanted people – a- he wanted people, particularly young readers, to dissuade or be dissuaded from making a hero out of James Bond. And I think that's highly ironic because Bond is more heroic and he's more of like a, you know, a, a Galahad on horseback in this novel than he is anywhere else. De-
1: definitely true. Um, at the same time, I mean, even even though he is very sh- chivalrous and whatnot and and, and aspiring to, to those ancient codes, uh, in the end, though, like he still pretty much takes – you know, he likes what he sees and he takes and he gets it or takes it. So, yes, he does. <laughs> so it's kind of slightly, I don't know, contradicting in, in that way, in my opinion.
0: But yeah, I, I guess what I mean, no, I mean, you're absolutely right. Bond is still a misogynist pig in this in this story and he still takes what he wants the night he has an opportunity to and then leaves with, uh, you know, the next morning and, and whatever. But I guess what I mean is from, from the narrative perspective, he is a hero and that's a strange. Yes. That's a strange thing to to depict. If you don't want you, you, people making a hero out of your character, don't make, don't put him in the arms of, and don't let him be uh, spoken about or narrated by uh, a very fragile, or I suppose fragile is not the right word, but um, emotionally weak woman. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: So, uh, and, and
1: now you mentioned that. I mean, uh Fleming framed this as a morality tale it definitely puts a slightly different perspective of when I was reading it and it kind of takes a lot of the some of the, the, the post the more modern kind of viewpoint that I was forced to see it through
0: mm-hmm. and
1: it takes a little, little a little less of the bitterness I have towards it in, in that particular way so it's good to know that this was a social experiment and I was thinking about this at the same time going yeah this is old Ian Fleming um, it's almost if he has if he's, if he's like one of those like you know, fathers with the teenage daughter thing and, you know, or he's like Clint Eastwood in Gran Torino, like get off my lawn. And he's just kind of sort of lamenting the state of a, a youth these days and, and culture and, and whatnot. And he's trying to, I don't know, put it put in his own perceived morality into the story um, and how he views, you know, human relationships and uh, the role of the female in society.
0: Okay. Maybe. Yeah, maybe, but I I wouldn't want to give him too much credit because I I still think that this this is – I feel as though this is part of a writer who tried something experimental – uh, but it didn't work. And he's trying to explain it through the guise of, oh, this was meant to be this. It was hoped to be that. But the truth is, Ian so you Fleming... You think this is
1: another kind of Quantum of
0: Solace kind of experiment. Exactly. I, I really do. I mean, look at look at where, yes. where and how Fleming has published his books, right? The, the last couple of books, we've had short stories published in Cosmopolitan, Woman's Monthly Magazine. We've got a story like, as you're saying, Quantum of Solace, which is all about this woman who's hard done by. We have... Um, uh, the main character, the main female character in Thunderball, who's a very powerful, aggressive woman, and takes advantage of, or sorry, um, well, takes advantage of her captor, I suppose, and and sort of uh, breaks free from his control um, as a kept woman. She gets some freedom, and then before that, we had um, the character of uh, Judy Havelock in For Your Eyes Only, who better than Bond, managed to find these criminals without any of an intelligence network. I mean, I think that Fleming is going in a modern place with his women insofar as he's capable. I mean, he's still, you know, he's still writing from a very bigoted point of view in a lot of ways, but I don't see this as trying to dissuade people from making a hero out of Bond so much as I do, I I, I see this as a continuation and maybe an exaggeration of that attempt to grab onto a female readership that he hasn't yet earned the respect of.
1: Yes, absolutely, and I think you know, like you can, you go, know, you know, formally you can dissect this novel, you know, into what happens into it and whatnot, and and some there are some good passages in the novel in this regard, and that's all I'll say, say about the quality of the storyline um, at this present of, of the text at this present moment. But I will say that it's quite apparent that uh, th- there's sort of like an epic fail um, feeling you get when Ian Fleming is trying to bring on the female audience into his readership and yeah i honestly i'm really curious to hear the the comments about this novel from all the especially from mr boucher and co
0: okay well i'll get there in just a moment um fleming went on to say that the experiment however you want to interpret this experiment uh has obviously gone very much awry (laughs) and he requested that no paperback version or reprints ever be released and until his death none were Interesting.
1: Mm. So there, it, it, so it had it, it. only had a first printing. Didn't have any other secondary printings afterwards.
0: That's right. And and here's something funny. Okay, if let's just let's just run with this train for just another second until I finish this point. If Fleming was hoping to acquire a more female. Uh, heavy readership with this story and if we we do care to view it as a continuation of what he maybe was trying with the Cosmo publications of the short stories and with Judy Havelock's character and Quantum of Solace and all this stuff right and Domino's character in, in Thunderball if it is sort of the culmination of that effort this female narrated first person then how disappointed do you think he would be to learn that not uh, not to learn, but how how must he felt when this was banned in several countries because of its highly sexualized writing, and more than that, it was published in Stag magazine, which was like a men's magazine, like like a lowbrow Maxim, almost like an upscale, uh, well, it house letter. Yeah, exactly, and it was <laughs> and, and it was published under the title Hotel Nymph.
1: He, he's, that's what he should have called it, hotel Nymph.
0: That would have great. <laughs> anyway, I just I can't help the feeling. If the guy was trying to get the respect of women with this book, then holy shit, he, he ended what a up he ended up with a turkey there from Stag Magazine.
1: And not a good turkey either. It's, no, it's more, it's more the, the kind of like store bought turkey that you already cooked or whatever. That's really kind of overcooked and <laughs> you know there's absolutely. Despite the fact of it being the most explicit novel apparently that he, that he's written, I don't know about that, but uh, mm-hmm. it just kind of feels like, you know, there's no juice to this story whatsoever.
0: Anyway, should I get on to the reviews then, yeah?
1: Yes, yes. Okay.
0: Um, this was received as the most, uh, what, <clears throat> the worst, the poorest of the Bond stories up to date, okay? Um, I've picked a couple of different sources this time, and I've stayed to a couple of of, um, of good old favorites, but... The Glasgow Herald, first we've heard from them, quote, his ability to invent a plot has deserted him almost entirely, and he has had to substitute for a fast-moving story the sad misadventures of an upper-class tramp told in dreary detail.
1: Upper-class I disagree with, but as a whole, I guess that's kind of how you you could surmise that story.
0: You could. Um, The Observer, Maurice Richardson, one of our friends, quote, a new and regrettable, if not altogether unreadable, variation. Hope that this doesn't mark the total eclipse of Bond in a blaze of cornography.
1: Corn, cornography? <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a great word. I mean, it's great.
1: You can apply it to so much stuff nowadays. That's so great.
0: Um, Times Literary Supplement, Philip Stead writes, A morbid version of that of Beauty and the Beast. Interesting. Vernon Scannell, um, who I know most as a poet, but um, yeah, Scannell wrote this poem uh, called A Case for Murder, where basically there's this young boy that's left alone and uh, in his house, not like left alone, you know, abandoned, but mm-hmm. he's just left at home and his parents are out or whatever, and he sees his cat under the under the sofa, and the cat is like kind of creeping him out, and so he chases the cat out with a broom and then smacks it and cra- uh, cracks its back through the door, it's a really creepy poem, but um, the reason I know that is because when I moved to Scotland, it was one of the first poems that I was aware of kids being taught, and I thought it was quite interesting. It actually made the news over here once or twice about, you know, uh, as a poem that you just simply shouldn't touch or teach kids because all but animal abuse, but whatever. Yeah, so he, Vernon Scannell, writes this in The Listener, quote, As silly as it is unpleasant, so unremittingly, so grindingly boring, end quote.
1: Yeah, that's, that's, that. Uh, I don't know if I, again, I think we'll, we'll discuss the the, the narrative because I think that's where it really kind of where you can make, it's really, I think, personal taste, whether you find the story boring or not.
0: Mm-hmm. But, well, of course, yeah.
1: But I can definitely
0: see what, how it could be predictable. Okay, well, we'll see. Drum roll, please. Here comes the New York Times' Anthony Boucher. Boucher says, quote, the author has reached an unprecedented low. End quote.
1: <laughs> uh, after all that praise with Thunderball.
0: I know, yeah, all that lukewarm praise. Um, but I did manage to find one positive review from The Spectator, and this was written by Esther Howard, who is our only female voice here of review. Quote yeah. Only just as nasty as is needed to show how absolutely thrilling it is for the narrator to be rescued from both death and worse than by a he man like James Bond. I like the Daphne du Maurier touch and prefer it this way, but I doubt if his real fans will.
1: Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. Is she speaking from like a romanticized a- aspect? Or yeah, is she speaking yeah, like Or is she saying that she liked Vivian, uh, or E.E.N., sorry? E.E.N. Uh, <laughs> that died very quickly because it's just, just too much effort to do.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, yeah. How did you perceive her as a character? Like, what did you... If you, i think it would have been a it would be interesting to track down the the you know the entirety of those reviews and kind of analyze them if you did kind of a another if we did if we ever did like another like follow-up show and just discussed you could talk with the by let me I, I think and for like for, for at least for another two hours or so on on how much to dissect from the novel in terms of Fleming's style and you know and how different and how different it was and
0: mm-hmm. and
1: how ambitious it was, and yet it never quite reaching its lofty heights that he wanted.
0: Yeah, I think we're going to, though. I, I think you're going to be surprised once we start talking about this that it isn't such a write-off, and there's a lot of stuff in here that I'm looking to flesh out with you. Um, but look, buddy, I mean, that that's it. That's a taste of the critics. And as I said, I could have selected or could have shared more of them, but that that's what they thought at the time when the book came out in April of 62. Not a good story, not a good public reception. Um, but I, I do give... Fleming some credit that he he waited, if he was wanting to do an experiment of this nature. I mean, he 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 intelligently waited until Bond was an established force before he went and did this. Because if this story had come out three, maybe even four novels into the series, his character would have died. Would have mean died. I mean, he would have died on the bookshelves. I, I think that that really would have hurt him. I mean, he it, it, in his oh, third, yes, in I, his I, third or oh, his fourth novel, the mid fifties. I don't think Saltzman would have picked up the, the the guy. I don't think he would have been as popular. To uh, continue the, the story writing with, if this was an an attempt, you know, in the 1950s,
1: it's it true. It would it would definitely kill the momentum of the Fleming sweep if this had if this story had occurred in the mid 50s. Um, but I think the time that it was written, you know, we're going in the, in the we're in the 60s now. the the uh, The first film is uh, is just it was it's about to be released, right? With uh,
0: that's right.
1: And then you know, and then we have like you know, like we got the. Uh, The the feeling of a culture, you know, Vietnam is coming up soon. The civil rights movement, uh, all this socio-political changes going on in the world. And Fleming is two years from his death at at this point. And uh, it just kind of seemed like to me, like the musings of an older gentleman on society. And he trying to give the, trying to try to just show his, I guess, using, again, he's using Bond as like as a cipher. Mm -hmm. Like we talk, like in Quantum of Solace, where he's using Bond as an instrument to, to put forth his viewpoints, you know what I mean.
0: I might agree with that if I felt as though the first two parts of this novel were actually crammed with viewpoints. I, I don't see that there's a lot of depth in the Vivian story part one. At That's least.
1: again that goes back to the Quantum of Solace thing, right? And yeah, uh, but I, I I I think I like I actually prefer it you know, as a whole. I think I prefer Quantum of Solace as a story more than I did Spy Who Loved Me. Just mm. to, just to give you an opinion on the outset.
0: Okay, it's um, interesting.
1: But shall I just go into the narrative just to kind of yeah. give an idea of, of the main yeah. story for you know
0: for those who are listening? Please do. Let's let's have a few minutes on a plot summary. Mm-hmm.
1: Our main character the girl uh, now replaces bond I guess in this in this narrative um, or I guess if you do the promotion of love comparison Vivian is Specter sorry is smirsh and bond is bond I guess <laughs> but uh, you know like yeah, I didn't
0: I didn't the, follow that buddy
1: the first half of the novel is devoted into one viewpoint
0: which oh, is Vivian's. right yeah I got you I got you
1: yeah and then like promotion of love you know it, you have smirsh uh, and their whole plan to bring down Bond and and, and uh, make you know MI6 look pretty silly in the eyes of the world of uh, of uh, spy culture uh, and espionage culture. And then you have um, in, in this in this novel uh, you have the perspective of a fe- of a female character dominating the entire narrative all the way through. So even though Bond does come halfway through the st- into the storyline. Even probably even more than halfway, I would argue. Uh, he is, is not really shown through his viewpoint. You know what I mean? But when he's there, the story does have a sort of a – sort of an, does sort of lift a little bit, I think, in that regard, with his presence. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm just trying to find the because exact page where he comes in. But, no, Bond doesn't arrive until uh, – part three in my story is uh, page 119, and that's uh, – in a book of two hundred pages, one ninety-nine pages. So, yeah, you're definitely talking the last third.
1: Yeah, yeah, de- definitely. But anyways, let's just go into the uh, into the narrative, shall we? Okay. Um, yeah. yeah, you so wanna- I'm, just, I'm just gonna. I'm just going I know because a lot of the story of the narrative is kind of uh, is, is is a first person. So, you you have a present situation going on. We're at where and she's given us, and a lot of the, the first half of the novel is backstory, mostly for Vivian. So the narrative. I'm, I'm just going to go in a very linear fashion in terms of chronology on 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 where, how Vivian ends up where she does.
0: Okay, man. Keep it simple, stupid.
1: Okay. Yeah. So, just for you know, just just to clarify, on the on the outset, we have Vivian Michelle in the Adirondacks, in the Adirondack Mount in, in the Adirondacks in New York State. Uh, at the Dreamy Pines Motel, a kind of like a, one of those old-style cabin mo- mo- motels that you rarely see these days. You know, they're always the ones you see off-road, and they're, they're the much older, worn-down type ones that they're not c- kept up. We're not talking about, you know, like um, Haldane Select or, you know, just your average r- r- run-of-the-mill connected motor lodge. We're talking about individual cabins and whatnot, just, yeah, just to yeah, give kind course. of a visual perspective. Yeah. Um supposed to kind of capture the uh, outdoor rugged camping feel as opposed to the much more like off the highway sort of com- commercial, um, you know, truck tr- truck drop off, stay for the night kind of aspect, right?
0: Yeah. I, I do see, as I've said to you, I think before I see real parallels between this and the Bates motel. And I'm going to get into those when I do my narrative uh, angle, but yeah, you're you are right. This isn't exactly a roadside, uh, junk spot this is a it is more of an independent camp like place yeah so
1: vivian uh michelle our protagonist so to speak she is the, she is a french canadian girl um this was you know at, this, was, this was at the time of like levesque taking over uh the the, the, the the government there and whatnot and the rise of the of the pq right
0: yeah the party quebecois
1: exactly uh-huh. so you have kind of a very conservative catholic quebec still standing pretty strong right
0: yeah very so, much so yeah
1: so michelle is part of that culture and she ends up essentially um being kind of an outcast in that culture you know in that in the way because she was a ad- uh, she she was basically um adopted by her aunt correct
0: that's right may i interject for a moment and just you help may. and just help add some color to what you're saying, because I've got a page. Yes. I've got a page this open. This is very
1: difficult. I will say right now, this is this is. It seems like it could be the simplest thing based on the story to to to, to, to give kind of an idea of, of, of how the story is put together, mm-hmm. and uh, and and what basically happens in the story, and just to give you kind of a synopsis. But it is actually quite difficult to sort of put together in a way that I don't know. That's to, to illustrate. It's it's, it's um. I guess not originality, but its distinctiveness from the other novels.
0: Yeah, and it and it is distinct because uh, Fleming spends a bit of time here laying out a backstory for Vivian, who and and that backstory wouldn't be familiar to the general reader. This sort of Catholic, this Catholic um, French Canadian sort of thing, and both both of um, both of Vivian's parents died in a in a crash um, coming into land on Montreal. So as you say, they were they were. Um, Uh, That made her a ward of her widowed aunt, a woman named Florence Toussaint. But anyway, she goes on and she says this, which I think kind of helps describe what you're saying here. Um, We got on all right, her and her aunt, and today I almost love her, but she was a Protestant while I'd been brought Mm -hmm. up as a Catholic. And I I became the victim of the religious tug-of-war that's always been the bane of priest-ridden Quebec, so nearly exactly divided between the faiths. The Catholics won the battle over my spiritual well-being, and I was educated in the Ursuline convent until I was 15. The sisters were strict, and the accent was very much on piety, with the result that I learned a great deal of religious history and rather obscure dogma, which I would gladly have exchanged subjects that would have fitted me to be something other than a nurse or a nun, and when in the end of the atmosphere became so stifling to my spirit that I begged to be taken away, my aunt gladly rescued me from the papists, and it was, de- as, and it was decided that at the age of 16 I should go to England and be, quote, finished. Um, just moving on to finish off this a little bit, Josh, for you. The true sons and daughters of Quebec form a society, almost a secret society, that must be as powerful as a Calvinist clique in Geneva, and the initiates refer to themselves proudly, male or female, as Canadiens. Lower, much lower down the scale come the Canadians, Protestant Canadians. Then, les Anglais, which embraces all, more or less, recent immigrants from Britain. And lastly, les Américains, a term of contempt. The Canadians pride themselves on their spoken French, although it is a bastard patois full of 200-year-old words, which Frenchmen themselves don't understand and is larded with Frenchified English words, rather, I suppose, like the relationship of Afrikaans to the language of the Dutch. The snobbery and exclusiveness of this Quebec clique extend even toward the French who live in France. These mother people to the Canadians are referred to simply as étrangers. I have told all this at some length to explain that the defection from the faith of a Michel from Saint-Famille was almost as heinous a crime as a defection, if that were possible, from the mafia in Sicily. And it was made pretty plain to me that in leaving the Ursuline and Quebec, I had just about burned my bridges so far as my spiritual guardians and my hometown were concerned.
1: So again, she is it puts her in this outcast um position where um she's kind of drifting between different aspects of society. And 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 you see this again when she goes over to England to be finished, so to speak. At the school, she ends up, you know, she falls immediately she falls under um the the interest of Derek Malaby, um, upper class, I guess, a British scion, I, I guess you could call him, of, of, of one of the families uh, there.
0: Or, um, if I may, and I'm whispering into your ears here, I think this was Ian Fleming.
1: You know what? Giving the finish, giving like the public, private school background and whatnot, and his early reputation and, his, and a young man in that time period. Yeah, that is definitely uh, a good avatar of Ian Fleming, that's for sure.
0: And the way he bangs her and then just leaves her and says, oh, I, I must go catch my train. I think I'll be late."
1: And also that too—that his parents dictates uh, is, is is what he uses as his excuse to abandon her in the letter.
0: Yeah, he's he's a fucktard. This character, I don't yeah. don't like him at all. And I've actually I've actually classed him as a villain in the, in the story.
1: Uh, yeah, Derek, you can definitely see as a villain you kind of get the feeling that from her perspective, because she's so besotted with him and, and, and into him and stuff. and mm-hmm. But she's like, I don't know. I don't want to go all this way. I'm not that kind of girl and all this kind of stuff. And you go through a lot of cliches and and, yeah. and stuff in this storyline that it just seems like, where did he, like, it's it just, it, is this how he thinks about, about youth, you know, like in, in,
0: well, no, I think that's again. That I'm not was talking about use. the narrative
1: because I, I just find it so difficult. So basically, we learn from from the narrative that uh, so sorry, right. so she, she, she yeah she goes to England. She meets Derek, this upper class punk who's basically Ian Fleming's avatar. Uh, and essentially, and it's funny is like it, did he was he aware that it's so obvious that uh, this is him? You know, um, but at the same time, uh, so she, so. And, you know, like he's he basically, you know, she's very chaste about the relationship. That's her approach to it. And yet, you know, they almost have like, you know, he, he tried when they first meet, you know, he tries to sort of cop a feel, so to speak. And, mm-hmm. and, but she turns him down uh, and she says, no, no, that's not the way I want, it. I want us to be together. And he respects that or so we, or so he appears <laughs> and they have a very kind of like, you know, she goes to work and, you know, gets, you know, she goes, she goes to goes to school and, she, goes, she gets, goes to work, and they have a correspondence over the next couple of months with letters and whatnot. And it's all very proper and noble in this in this way, like you would expect, you know? And then, of course, when they finally do meet up and whatnot, and he's like, well, I've been talking to some girls, to some of the boys, Viv, and, you know, and whatnot, and my reputation and all this sort of stuff. And uh, I think we kind of should have sex, basically, <laughs> is, is, is how, he, how he puts it, uh, very not nonchalantly. Yeah, and, and I and I've uh, got
0: this great place. It's a beautiful, romantic theater box full of sticky <laughs> oh. seats and popcorn on the floor. You're gonna love it.
1: Yeah. So, uh, Ian Fleming, I guess he must have heard about like you know what the young people do in these movie theaters nowadays and whatnot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and uh, he's saying Definitely I think he got probably that. a little bit envious, you know, like you know he's out there in Jamaica, you know, macking on like upper upper class <laughs> women there and living with his wife and pursuing uh, Blanche and all this sort of stuff. And now, you know, we're dealing with, you know, these teenagers, you know, they get to use those, those special boxes in movie theaters to, to do things. And I myself was kind of surprised that movie theaters had like these, these, these separate boxes in there where no one could really see what they were doing, you know. And, I mean, I can understand maybe getting some sort of hand situation, handsy situation going mm-hmm. on. Or even, even a little bit more explicit, you know, in a movie theater in the uh-huh. dark there. Like, you can get away with some things. <laughs> but, like, actually, like, laying down, like, a, a a coat on the ground and stuff like that. And it's, it's just, this guy, Derek, I don't know, man, is just, like, it just seems kind of like this, wow,
0: you know? <laughs> yeah. He's got some sort of pathology that, that requires him to have sex, like, everywhere he can, anytime <laughs> he can do it.
1: Yeah, something like that. So, anyways, that's it. this escalates. This whole relationship escalates between like coping fields in the movie theater and whatnot to an to es- essentially um, full blown lying on the floor of sex right in the movie theater, <laughs> in which of course they are caught in flagrante delicto, and uh, you know the manager of the movie theater and the entire audience that's there you know looks you know looks shamefully at them and raises their fists in anger and they run out and stuff and they avoid a cop and. They don't get caught, so they still end up ended up having sex, though. However, where she loses her virginity, um, most likely he wasn't losing his then. That was probably long gone. Uh uh-huh. um, It's kind of funny though, because in terms of <laughs> how they go from the box of the movie theater to which was which I can in comparison to where they end up going is even less it was 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 actually kind of private. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. the box it was a private box, so to speak, as opposed to where they end up going to like. A field in the middle of a park.
0: Yeah, under a tree that's already been depressed in the grass, or the grass is already depressed from every other couple that's laid there.
1: Exactly, exactly. But it's I guess because everyone knows, everyone goes there. It's kind of like a kind of like a sock on the door in the campus.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Kind kind of aspect, I suppose. When, when after after the after the deed is done and everything and and, and whatnot, Derek basically drops her like a stone. Uh, Because under the pretense that his family um, doesn't think she's good enough for him. And, you know, and he's got a nice local girl, uh, upper class girl as well for him to that 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 they want him to marry. You know, he goes, well, my parents want me to do this. You know, it's my family obligation. I have to do this. You're really sweet girl, Viv. Uh, I'd like us to be friends. Bullshit. Right.
0: Yeah. Total bullshit.
1: Yeah. So then that was a pretty terrible uh experience on 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 her part and but you know she perseveres she's a strong girl you know and uh so she, then she ends up uh work you know working off her angst uh joining a local newspaper kind of like almost like a it's almost like an independent newspaper that's kind of a lot of, more about gossip. It's almost like a ray almost, I guess you would call it, eh?
0: Yeah, this was a really weird part of the story for me because, yeah, okay, fine. She, she joins his newspaper, but it, it's, it's only – it's like a small part of her job that – of the story that you know allows the other guy to come into her life, this guy that you're going to talk about, Kurt. But Kurt. What, a, what a weird uh, – yeah, the Chelsea Clarion is what it's called, this kind of – Chelsea uh,
1: Clarion, yeah. But,
0: it, but it's described as a glorified parish magazine had gone in for small ads and had established itself as a kind of marketplace for people looking for flats and rooms and servants in the southwest part of london and had a little editorial section but i mean she writes about it like it's some sort of a fucking vogue magazine
1: yeah absolutely like Susanna wintour or something like that because <laughs> yeah. it, it kind of it kind of seems almost uh like one of those community newspapers you get like peterborough this week or something like that you know just with local bits of news in there with a lot of advertisements that people place, you know, and it's not like a newspaper, a major publication per se. And I guess it had a sort of a column where she kind of just, just, I guess just kind of shows in terms of her character, you know, like it's funny how like the the reviews say she's upper class women. And I don't really agree with that whatsoever. I think she's very bucolic in, 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 her nature. And even though, you know, she's torn between, you know, her Catholic upbringing and then the upbringing that, you know, that her Anne forced upon her and whatnot, and how she's outcast in society there. Uh, she's definitely kind of seen, like, I don't know, like, she's, she kind of seems like the diamond in the rough, where, yeah, like, it's a glorified, like, community rage, And she mm-hmm. sees it as if it's like the, the New York Times or the Times of London, you know? Like, she definitely has a, a, a delusional quality to her, in my opinion, and how she perceives the world. And she always rises herself up and then falls so dramatically. You just can't, but feel bad for her, you know.
0: Yeah, she gets into I, I, the worst I don't know.
1: situations with uh, men in general.
0: She does and that, yes.
1: She is definitely cursed in that respect.
0: Yeah, she but is.
1: Her next um, relationship is Kurt, uh, a German, who is looking for basically. Um, he has his own, he, he works for his own, he works for, 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 for his own German newspaper and he just wants to basically to get little, he wants someone to basically go through the, uh, the, the you know, the, the, the English, British media and just find various bits of news where that he can incorporate into his own newspaper. And Vivian is basically like his correspondent over in the UK. She, that shows she begins working for Kurt in this way. Um, now, Kurt is a bit of an interesting character. Um, he, he like when they were when they, when they were just working professionally together, him and Vivian. Uh, Kurt basically uses her as kind of like uh, a, he's always looking for the girl's advice opinion, you know, on his relationships in his life. Because there's a girl back home who he's really sweet on, who he wants to marry and, and whatnot, and and he's trying to romance her in different ways and, and whatnot. And he basically uses her as kind of like a sex guru. yeah it's weird it's it's really weird it's just one of those things like just just fleming going those germans you know like and it kind of creates that culture of germany that i think that's permeated pop culture i think since like the 70s kind of where it's just this idea of a very kind of like art nouveau kind of uh mechanized yet sexual culture you know Mm -hmm. yeah you know you think of like on saturday night live uh what is it those 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 two we're going to pump you up, you know, like those German <laughs> guys, you know, with their slick back hair and all nihilistic and all this sort of stuff, you know? And Kurt definitely takes the cake when it comes to that to those types of people and those types of stereotypes right
0: yeah I also think Kurt's full of shit too like
1: oh oh, oh, yeah Kurt is absolutely full of shit like I don't don't think I don't think even more so than Derek even more so than Derek I think you're right because
0: at, at least Derek you know what he's after he doesn't make any qualms about it Kurt pretends to be this sort of artsy affected um you know uh this champion of free spirit and uh philosophy when really he just wants to get into people's pants as well
1: exactly he just has a very kind of uh passive aggressive way of going about it um not not passive aggressive he has a very impassive way of 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 doing it and you know he basically uses uh vivian as a sex guru you know to help improve his relationship and i'm like really you're getting advice you know from the girl who was seduced by a guy in a movie theater box you know and whatnot but uh (laughs) anyways so Eventually, though, that relationship comes to an end when, unable to continue that relationship for a certain amount of time, Kurt's girl back home ends up engaged to someone else. And so Kurt's, well, he's filled with that relationship. So he's figuring, well, this girl is ready and willing for me. I I can feel it. I know she has the, you know, the unresolved sexual tension here. You know, I I can feel it from her. So he decides to, you know, bring her into his uh, into his fold and whatnot. And, you know, it seems, you know, for a bit that, you know, he could maybe be a decent guy, you know, but knowing the narrative and and whatnot, that soon falls apart. And uh, as soon as, as, you know, she falls for him and and she thinks they actually have something there, the moment that she decides to, you know, to not wear contraceptives and force a baby upon him, uh, it pretty much ends that relationship because he asks her to go to Zurich and have an abortion and.
0: Yeah, the dude doesn't just ask her. This guy, like, books the plane. He yeah, books the clinic. He, the he pl- gives her money. He buys her clothes. Yes. He says, here's what you're going to eat before you go in. He says, uh, here's the pillow you're going to sleep on. Um, here's the number you're going to call. And uh, let me know when it's over. Or, yeah. Don't, or like, don't.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's not like going well. What's, you think of, you know, whenever, whenever you watch like a, a modern storyline about this type of situation where, well, what do you think you should do? You know, like, what, what do you want to do with the baby? You know, like what, what are your feelings? Or even if you have a, a situation where the, the the female character is like, I think you should have an abortion It's for the best of us. And they are kind of forceful in a douchey way. This is beyond being a, a dickhead. This is like something out there completely, you know, it's like going, uh, I don't want this child. Uh, I, I, it's almost like Nazi, like, you know how he just wants yes. to get rid of it, you know? And, I, and
0: I'm really and glad like, you you brought that up because this is another example of see, I mean, I think that Fleming creates this scenario so that we will sympathize with Vivian, but the truth is this is just another way of him getting... Uh, a dickhead reputation for the Germans because post-war he's not happy I mean he's still not happy with the Germans and I mean a lot of Brits weren't and a lot of Brits and Americans and Canadians and he did have legitimate qualms with the Germans but now we are in the industrial phase of the post-war era and Germany's trying to rebuild itself and remake its reputation but the old British Empire will not let it down and every fucking villain in these Fleming stories has some German connection.
1: That's definitely true Yep, that German still hunts them. But we, we got to give I mean, you know, he did basically um, cast pretty much disparagement upon himself with the Derek Malaby character. So maybe he felt that's that. That's
0: true. It, yeah, that's true.
1: Maybe the self-loathing that he kind of he kind of put into that. <laughs> I wonder how much that is is autobiographical autobiog- bi- in, in many aspects, but the self-loathing that he put into that character, perhaps he wanted to kind of uh, go permeate it. Out, out. He wanted to spread it outwards, you know, he wanted to. He wanted to, he wanted to reflect outwards and and just go back into some old fashioned you know, like, you know, uh, British uh, Jerry hating, you know?
0: Yeah. Good old Jerry hating.
1: Yeah. I mean, they're Nazis. There's no reason why you can't hate them. Right. So
0: that's right.
1: So again, we have, you know, Vivian, once again being very well well left down and uh, sorry, let down. And uh, in a situation, again, where she has to, like, almost like a gypsy, move on, move, move forward. And that's kind of a good aspect of her character, I think, is she's kind of a moving gypsy, you know, like a nomad, going through various different, uh, going from French Quebec to England, and then ended up staying in Zurich, and then finally heading back to England again, where she finds out her best friend, her roommate, is, is now married. So there's no reason you know, for her to continue where she is now. So she's going to head back home, right? So she heads back to Quebec and she meets up with her aunt again and and then buys her Vespa and then goes on the open road to Florida where she's going to find a job for a newspaper, you know? Like, she's married Tyler Moore, you know? Like, I'm going to make it after all. <laughs> <laughs> Throwing up her hat in the air, you know, or her or putting on her, on her helmet and heading down the highway, you know, into America. And, of course, she ends up, uh, you know, spending a lot of time wandering around upstate New York and all of its like tourist t- tourist traps like storyland and all these little par- all these little uh, animal land places that you would see like in Ontario and upstate New York right and spending so much money there even though she was kind of interested like I liked how she was interested in like the battlefields of the um, of the American re- revolution because a lot of the earlier campaigns of Washington and whatnot and Lexington Concord and all this sort of stuff that those were all in that area ticonderoga valley forge you know like they were all in that area and uh, she spent a lot of money there just going to these knickknack places but also at the same time going to a lot of the historical places too and uh, spending a lot of money and of course when she's almost broke she decides when she stops off at the dreamy pines lodge she decides um to take the job offered by the uh fancies the mm-hmm. couple that runs that the, the, the dreamy Pines Motor Lodge um and the fancies offer her jobs, you know just be, because they are heading they're only holding the place you know for mr sanguinetti back in Troy and they're going to be heading out and uh they want someone to to run the place w- while they're gone
0: well just uh, look and, look it over for one night is what they say I mean oh they... yes
1: yeah yeah story yeah uh yeah just look just, just uh, you know, just basically um, working with them up until they leave. Is what I, was, was, what I meant to say for a couple of weeks, and then, and then basically staying there for one night while they leave until Mr. Sanginetti uh, uh, arrives to take control again, right? To, to kind of, uh, or get someone to replace them while they're gone. So again, uh, Vivian is put in the situation of uh, having a sympathetic f- uh, female at first to talk to. And then having Mr. Faint, uh, Mr. Fancy, who sort of who sort of comes off as automatically being a bit creepy, and then just goes and just escalates from there. It just seems like everywhere she goes, she runs into very lascivious and lecherous, and even like I don't know, just like nowadays, you know, these people would be behind bars, you know, like just how they treated women back then, and. Is this an exaggeration of this culture of this culture that Fleming is showing in his morality tale? It you might know, be. His, uh, how do you put it? Your uh, cautionary tale, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it could be. It's I mean this this guy Fancy, he's a, uh, I mean yeah you're right. Lechery, she just swims in it around here in this story. This lechery everywhere. But this guy Fancy is 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 kind of like Al Bundy, you know, from Married with Children, but a little a little dirtier.
1: A little dirtier, yeah, but I don't know. I think Al had some nobility compared to this guy, though.
0: <laughs> yeah, he did, but you had to watch like you know a season before you saw any of it.
1: That's true. All you have is you. We think of Al Bundy. You have a presentation of a guy sitting on a chair with his hand in his pants, right? So
0: <laughs> that's right, and that's we only see this guy fancy for like you know a few pages before he fucks off. But when he drives away, leaving Vivian at that uh, at at the uh, the motor home or the motor home the uh, the motel. Uh, this, this is pretty heavy foreshadowing. We know something's going on because he has these knowing smiles and there's kind of these smirks that the two of them have about leaving her there. And so obviously they're part of this greater insurance scam, right? And they know what's know what. In
1: retrospect, right. I think about that now. Yeah, good point. That's definitely true. They were they were aware that the, the, the insurance scam that was going on. Were they even aware, I think, too, that Sanguinetti had plans to also... Mister Sanguinetti probably knew that she was there. They're probably in contact with him, right? So oh, they yeah, probably yeah. knew that, that that they were gonna kill Vivian at the same time. Is it well, well they knew is, is, that is, is, is
0: that plausible, you think? It's plausible. I don't I don't know that these guys showed up and were immediately going to kill, but I, I think that if there was an innocent victim in the fire, a woman, a girl who was just looking out the place for them, you know, then it, it would kinda of help the whole insurance thing, right, a little bit. Um, but I don't know that they expected sort of the the sexual assault side of things to occur but yeah I think these fancies were just out for themselves uh, proprietors that wanted to take advantage of any situation they could and claim a few extra you know bundles of dough and that's kind of what they were doing knowing that I, regardless I of regardless of the, you know how the, the T's were crossed and the eyes were dotted that this girl might be left into some trouble and they didn't really care about it because they were away
1: This by the way this whole dynamic with Sanguinetti and Troy and then uh, very soon after the fancies leave, uh, we have the two villains of the story, so to speak. Well, outside of Derek and Kurt, obviously, but uh, uh, Slugsy S- Slugsley and uh, the Thin Man. Uh, Thin Man, I Slugsy
0: guess... Morant and Saul Horror.
1: Yeah. Great right.
0: names, very cool names.
1: Horror, yeah. H O, o- A R E, right?
0: No, no, horror, as in horror films. And I think that's a real uh, heavy-handed hit because he's just like a vampire. Like everything about the guy is a vampire.
1: That's true. Very pale skin and stuff.
0: And, and the teeth and that are you know, sickly looking. metal-capped and sickly-looking, anemic, and he wears black. And Yeah, I mean, it's all vampire.
1: Yeah, b- very much so. So in this particular, uh, somewhat, I guess, in many ways, I guess you could call this story so far kind of a realistic kind of run-of-the-mill kind of story. Um, he is having his own that those fetishes I think that Fleming has, you know, where the villains with like these really deformities or very distinct features that make them different from your, from your regular type of thugs. And he wanted to put upon these two hoods, you know, a sort of menace. I think that, that the story, story warranted. And the moments with Slugsy Morant and with horror, as he's called, um, it almost, it's almost like as if he's conjuring up, you know, uh, images of like Max Shrek as, uh, as Nosferatu, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, he's, he's almost Orlok, like a crypt right?
0: keeper. Yeah, he, he's just kind of hanging around and waiting for the death to permeate. E-
1: exactly, and they have Slugsy, you know, this guy who just came out of, out of prison, and these guys are definitely pros, and they're they're all part of this insurance scam to burn down the lodge and get all the money from it for Mister Sanguinetti, the mobster uh, back back in Troy, and uh, Vivian pretty much is, uh, catches their their uh, their attention. The novel goes so many, 30, so many times to describe Vivian's, I guess, her voluptuous features. That you know, it's almost like you're seeing it. Uh, Laura Mulvey, I think, would raise an eyebrow. I think, and how how Fleming, despite the fact that he's writing a uh, a first person narrative through a female perspective, it's amazing how much the male gaze is incorporated into reading this novel.
0: Oh yeah, and even it's, though his intentions are
1: making. The female gay, the, is making young boys realize, you know, that Bond isn't to be looked up to. Uh He pretty much wrote like kind of like one of those old like uh American. I'm not, not talking about like the noir of like Chandler or Hammett. I'm talking about like Mickey Spillaney, Mike Hammer mm-hmm. kind of stuff here, you know?
0: Very much. And I, I mean, I, I, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. I, I know you're still in your summary here, but I can't. I just can't for the world of me believe that Fleming, a smart, intelligent man, a great writer we've talked about before, you know, is honestly trying to pass this story off as an experiment to not let boys make a hero out of James Bond. I mean, it's every a it's a fucking boys fantasy. You rock up to a hotel, you see this hot chick who's pretty clean, pretty, you know, she needs some help, you help her out, and she rewards you with uh with with a hand job in a shower. And, 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 like, uh, you know, two, two wonderful sexual, uh, experiences before you're up and fighting again. And then, you know, you, you leave her putty in your hands and away you go. Like this is exactly what young boys want. He's so full of shit. Like it's, it, it's, it's total crap. This, I, I, you know, I know I'm becoming a little bit effusive here, but I don't buy for a second that this is, this is a morality tale to caution young men away from making a hero out of this guy. This guy is every young man's fucking dream hero
1: absolutely 100% you know and that's and... not
0: that's not saying a lot for guys and i'm not here to defend guys and masculinity i mean guys are dicks of course they are but are you going to say no to free safe sex with a woman who respects you and a woman who you can ultimately respect but wants to thank you for what you've done for her and a bit of action a bit of guns a bit of villainy you know the, yeah. the morality comes in with the good versus the evil these guys are evil you know these guys are bad bad characters and bond only I mean, he only justifies his, his cause in this story by pointing out just how professionally evil they are. They don't drink. They don't smoke. Only the pros do that. You know, only the real bad guys do that kind of stuff who are so committed to their task that they won't let any sort of weakness into them, alcohol or nicotine or anything like that, right? And yeah, Anyway, whatever. I mean, I'm yeah, whatever. I'm taking advantage here of your time, but uh, right. No, that,
1: that, no, that, that, that that's okay. I think how we're doing the narrative here, it kind of fits, uh, and how we're kind of these side digressions while we're doing the narrative, I think is kind of making the narrative a bit more interesting than it actually could have
0: been. <laughs> okay, well, roll on, brother, roll on. Uh,
1: sorry, not the narrative, but the uh, plot, su- the plot summary, a bit more interesting. So continuing forward, uh, so we've had, so we
0: so 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 far, we
1: encountered. Uh, Derek, the, 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 uh, Fleming avatar. Then we have, um, douchebag Kurt, the, uh, cr- the, uh, the, uh, the evil kraut. And now, <laughs> and now we have, and now we have, uh, slugsy and horror, the t- typical Bond villains. Yeah,
0: Frankenstein um, and Nosferatu.
1: Yeah. Frankenstein and Nosferatu. That's basically who we have here. We got the universal, uh, we got Boris Karloff and, uh, Lon Chaney Jr.
0: Is hanging out in the woods. Oh, he's out somewhere.
1: Now, Viv- now Vivian does end up trying to escape and going out into the woods when she realizes these guys are up to no good very quickly, but uh, that doesn't work out too well.
0: No, she and wakes up really in the bathroom.
1: Yeah, she, yeah, she, yeah, exactly. She ends up like naked in the in the bathroom styles and they don't quite allude to what happened to her. If she remember what happened, I'm like, did they take? Did they like, you know, go? the had their way with her while she no, was. No, they out? didn't.
0: No, they didn't. No, they didn't. didn't you know, horror and horror insisted that they didn't do it until the job was done
1: exactly kind of like i guess a uh an incentive i i guess after all the for all the work right
0: yeah they, they just keep playing it off like later tonight you're mine later tonight baby later tonight and yeah. all of this just lets us know okay bond is going to come here pretty soon if you keep paying this off
1: oh yeah absolutely i mean the Shekhov's gun right the the, the 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 gun is on the the gun has been hung on the wall it will it will fire at some point yeah and all this delay and delay and delay kind of a suspense going uh uh, uh to the point where basically Vivian is like throwing dishes and fending for herself with a knife and then being, you know, like uh, forced over the edge of a countertop and, you know, where something terrible is about to happen. And that's when in that last minute of hope, the, the, the buzzer rings at the hotel and of course it's bond. And then in my mind, I, in my mind reading the book at the time, I was just sort of like, Okay, well, I'm I'm i actually kind of looking forward to Bond fucking these guys up. So oh, totally,
0: wanna... yeah, me too. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. And it and when he does show up, it is kind of awesome. Um, Bond it's is very, it's his...
0: very awesome. I think the last third of this book is great.
1: Yeah, if you if you compare it to it, yeah, like the last third of the book, it, yeah, it's 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 your typical kind of like just Bond being awesome moments, you know. But at the same time, like this, he was in a situation where he could have like screwed up and, and been killed in this situation. So the danger was there for him. So I, I wasn't ever bored in that scenario. So the moment Bond shows up to me is when this book gets kind of goes, I was like, okay, Ian, you did your attempt. I get it. This is a feminist narrative. You wanted to show young boys, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And how is a cautionary tale, but, just give us James Bond, please, you know, and, and this is what we get, you know, like we we never got this in quantum of solace, you know, we had the whole story of, of, about the woman who, uh, who basically was treated, even though she was, wasn't performing very, she wasn't performing, uh, very well in terms of being a wife and cheating on her, on her husband who was besotted with her. And then how he, how he left her cold and made her an outcast in society and stuff. And she ended up, she ended up marrying, you know, a Canadian millionaire, but there was no stakes to that storyline, you know? Whereas here, we we, we we do get that dose of Bond, I think, that the book needed.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with you.
1: Yeah. But it's almost like it feels like it just in the greater Bond world, you know, we have this moment where it connects to the Fleming sweep, too, because we do know that... Um, Blofeld's on the run. He's hunting connections with Spectre and other organizations. So we know that the storyline is still continuing onwards. And I did like that little nod in there, which kind of said to me, "All right, so this is kind of this is kind of like the book before on Her Majesty's Secret Service, where mm-hmm. Bond is on the trail, so to speak, right?"
0: Yeah, very much.
1: So that kind of allowed me, allowed me to accept this story within the continuity, I guess, of the whole narrative that Fleming has constructed over time.
0: Yeah. Plus, he he makes references to um <clears throat> to the, you know the specter as you're saying that kind of the, the mission that brought him there in the first place, and that makes us remember how the guy got away. And you would have heard about Project Thunderball or whatever because it was all over the media. Which I don't. That that to me seemed like a real pigeonhole shove in there because I wouldn't have thought they would want to have had much of no. that stuff released to the public.
1: And the way that uh, funny wrote Thunderball, I kind of was on, I was I thought there was kind of a, a kind of a, of a hint or some kind of in, indication that they were keeping it very hush hush you know like
0: yeah very secretive in the, yeah
1: in the film version of the thunderball they definitely it was it was an undercover operation right they didn't mm-hmm. want to cause panic
0: but i guess and that's it, i guess that's kind of like uh, uh you know it's it's a, it's a, it's an author's prerogative to to slide something in there but i also feel like that's really really transparent to in communicating to us as a reader like oh i need to remind you this is a james bond story and oh by the way this is kind of still connected to those great things that we saw before even though i've just dragged you through two parts of a story that were kind of shit now i want you to know that this is still kind of james bond and it's still really serious and it's still kind of cool and <laughs> i guess I, I can still really no trust me trust me guys i can still really make a good story here because bond was here for this for this for this uh this double agent who was actually Who's actually defecting in a double way back to us, and then we had to protect him because because no 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 wait for it wait for it he has these Soviet secrets and and there's all this cool stuff and and it, it's still Bond trust me trust me and I can't yeah. help I can't help but feel like that's the story that Fleming should have told because that's the one that I think would have been cool have Vivian you know have the third part of the story here and have Vivian somehow part of it but you know I think that. You know, if if the henchmen in this story, or you know Saul and Slugzy, if they had been connected to the SmurSh story that he sells as his reason for being in the Adirondacks, and then somehow they were following Vivian because they thought Vivian had some sort of a you know a connection to, to to you know to let. I don't know to make their lives um, more lucrative or whatever, and Bond kind of worked in the first part of that story. I think this. I think that the 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 blueprint for a really great narrative is in here. It's in those few pages that Bond has when he sells his story to her over the eggs and toast that she makes him. You know.
1: Exactly. And again, there's a lot of again in this one here. Eggs and a, eggs and toast and whatnot. Like Fleming loves his breakfast. As I was yeah. reading this storyline where we have this whole different character, Vivian. And here she is, like making breakfast in detail and, and whatnot, and everyone loves to eat breakfast. And it's yeah. this obsession with breakfast is kind of find slightly amusing. I, do, I wonder um,
0: if the egg The eggs were fried, though they weren't soft boiled for three minutes.
1: Oh, that, that's true. That's that's true, and they were from some sort of like special uh, hatching farm out like in, in Surrey or the Lake Country or something like that, right? Uh, lake District. Yeah. yeah. But, but anyways, uh, mo- moving onwards. Um, the story storyline about the the defecting agent and then the spectre agent who was trying to play was trying to kill the was trying to kill the russian defector and, and whatnot in, in Toronto and Bon working with the Mounties and whatnot and Vivian being Canadian it just seemed to me that the pieces were there to fit to a better story but yeah
0: they were and I went and did a little bit of research on um, because I didn't know anything about it about like gang violence in Toronto and sort of how or- organized crime was in the 50s and 60s and it turns out that there was actually a lot of stuff there that he could have made a story about he seems to know stuff
1: he does. Yeah. He was very well researching that. And you got a feeling that he's not just dropping these things at like exposition dumps, like he puts it in pretty naturally, like, and how he has his, his whole set up, his whole description of like Quebec society was pretty bang on, you know, from, you know, from what, what we ourselves have perceived in our own lives. So hmm. you can't, you gotta give Ian credit. He does his research in terms of creating cultural backgrounds.
0: He does. Now the problem with this book, I think is that if, uh, I, I just don't think general reader wants to read much, and this is why I think it, it was a failure. Because I don't think Vivian Michelle is an interesting female for most readers. I don't think a, a Catholic slash Protestant. Ooh, watch that Francophone, or, you know that Franca, Francophone uh, problem in, in in Canada. Isn't that such an interesting background for a woman? Like it isn't really. Like she's not trying to
1: almost exoticize French French like a French Canadian girl in, and in many ways. That's right? fucking hard
0: to do, man. That's hard to do
1: it really is like with the North American audience and a British audience familiar with the Commonwealth. I mean, it just kind of seems like a motel as a motel is the main, the main setting. Sure. There's London and Zurich and stuff, but they're kind of very sterilized versions of those places.
0: Yeah, they are. And it just
1: kind of seems like it's like, he had to add some color to the story with this whole spy back with all, with all this background to the tour character and, and, and stuff. And he's just trying to basically put, put gloss and stuff. that's just not very interesting, you know, Bingo. Yeah, so going back to uh, Bond arrives at the door, and uh, there's a bit of a moment where a bit of suspense on on you know him coming in, and and is he going to take out the guys right away? Is this going to is Bond going to come in and just come in guns blazing, pull off some cool move and stuff? But he does a typical Bond thing, which I really loved, which is kind of just blending into the situation and kind of just messing with their with their plans right like just yeah. kind of being the fly in the ointment and, and enjoying that role and stuff and also being there at the same time for the girl right so it, it, it actually it actually created additional suspense and that was really suspe- that was really effective i think uh in terms of the narrative but continuing the plot summary um it basically ends up with um bond convincing the crooks that he's just some some limey cop who's just spending the night and. They don't care, you know, about that situation because they claim to be legitimate businessmen, and you know, so they haven't done anything wrong. So they don't perceive Bond as a threat qu- quite yet, and and, and they're they playing it cool, right, in that capacity. Yeah, I did like I did like how the notion of these guys are basically like these these essential like just absolute universal horror pictures monsters, but at the same time they 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 switch back. They're able they're able to change gears. And become very lucrative soldiers for like a like a mafia don, right? In that yeah, capacity,
0: yeah. It's believable.
1: Yeah, they, they they play this the soldier aspect really good, the button men, so to speak, right? Like the brazzis And I'm trying trying to think of another example. Uh, who was that guy from The Sopranos? You know, the poly Walnuts type 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 people. You know, like they seem like these jokes of characters, but when they need to operate professionally, they can do it, right?
0: Oh yeah, like Vito.
1: Yeah, like Vito, exactly. The
0: guy who comes out with the the homosexual story there towards the end of his uh his life. Yeah,
1: yeah. like Vito, yeah, exactly or Ralphie or what 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 have you? Uh-huh.
0: Yeah, Gosh. Ralphie, that's a that's a better example. Ralph, yeah, Ralph's a better example.
1: Yeah, cuz he was a bit of a hothead, Ralphie, uh, on this, and we're talking about the Sopranos, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah Ralph Soprano. He was a bit of a hothead and stuff and uh he, he seemed kind of more like in, in the style of these kind of guys, you know, like where's Polly and Silvio—they're kind of, you know, they, they, you know, they were mobbed up and, at, you know, to the capacity. But they're kind of cool guys in their own way, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, like, I suppose, despite like, so. like
1: being mobsters, they had charisma at least, you know. Like,
0: well, they had a they you know, had like, a certain moral code, didn't they?
1: Yeah, like I could see Bond working with Silvio. Like, if Bond was undercover with the Spangled, with the, the Soprano family, as opposed to you know, like the Spangled mob and Diamonds Are Forever. I could definitely see, you know, Bond getting along with Silvio and Polly and whatnot, you know?
0: Me too, but I, I'm, I'm glad you but, mentioned but the I Spangled think Ralphie Mob. Would
1: piss him, I think Ralphie would piss him off, though.
0: Ralphie would piss him off, but I'm glad you mentioned the Spangled Mob because I think these two guys could have, um, like, I think it would have been cool if Fleming had tried to make a connection there. I like, the I sh- mean, like
1: Shady Tree showing up or something like yeah, that.
0: like, I didn't need it, right? I didn't need it, and I'm not feeling like it, it affects the story because it's not there, but I just think that, you know, given, given what... What lengths he went to with diamonds are forever and organized crime in that story. I, I think it would have been really nice to have even just a a mention of these guys being part of a bigger network, like Sanguinetti being part of a of a shady tree type relationship. Or I mean, again, this is a blueprint he could have returned to if he wanted to. He could have made this a bigger story and a more interesting one. But um, you know, whatever. We're not here to to bash him for that, yeah. I guess. But I uh, I would love to have. Shady Tree come back because although he was only in a few scenes, he was one of my favorite characters from that story, and really from the whole Bond series so far.
1: Yeah, he was. He, Shady Tree was pretty cool, and in comparison to like this film version, uh, a very disappointing adaptation in that Quite, way.
0: Yeah. Anyway, right. So let's finish up and then we'll uh, we'll move on. Yeah, absolutely. So essentially, so Bond
1: ends up staying the night to protect the girl. Now, the girl, unfortunately, she has to she she's forced by the by the guys to stay in the cabin, you know, attached to the same cabin as the hoodlums, right? So what we don't know is that because of the whole fire trap thing that they're setting up for the insurance fraud, um, Slugsy has basically uh, carved a hole in the closet with a knife, basically, where, well, even though, like, Bond made sure that the the whole motel room was barred up for Vivian so the guys couldn't get in and whatnot, he made sure she was in her fortress, so to speak, Slugsy manages to to get into the closet to, to like the to, to the drywall in the closet he's obviously made preparations right and it's interesting though is because we talked about you know how she was the prize at the end of the operation this doesn't quite work out that way because they ended up just knocking her out completely and it's bond that saves her from from being burned to death so they really don't didn't end up having their way with her and of course as things turn out uh with the place being uh burned down and whatnot and uh and and Bond, you know, pulling the stunt with with the uh, pillows in the bed and whatnot, and making it look, look like he was asleep, so so that they would just like, often by simply opening the door, very much like the sequence in the film version of Doctor No with Professor Dent, they they you know they they write Bond off as dead. Of course, Bond isn't dead. He managed to get the girl out, and then of course we have the big sh- showdown with Tommy guns and Bond with his uh, Walter PPK blasting away, and it's a very well written action sequence actually, and and how it's visualized, like him like you know uh the cover the cover fire and and, and mm-hmm. the cover fire and whatnot in the way that he describes you know people limping and uh how they get into the how Slugsy and horror are getting away the and they get into the car as the place is burning yeah, and, and that's they, cool. and and uh they're making a like an, an end run to just like to, to take Bond out completely just by running him over and Bond ends up uh getting into a firefight with Slugsy and Horror to the point where Bond when while they're trying to kill Bond with the uh with the black sedan, Bond manages to, to take out horror, and the car crashes into the lake and sinks. Only only up to the point of his trunk sticking out, but to the point where it's assumed that either Slugley is drowning or he was also killed in the car as well. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, going back to, to 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 one of the still standing cabins at the at the Dreamy Pines, um, Bond brings. The, the the Vivian back there, and they have a little romantic interlude there, right, where she thanks him for saving him and, and whatnot. Even though Bond is kind of pushing the situation because she he ends up like you know like uh, bringing her to the to the, to the, into the cabin and whatnot, and she goes he goes go into the shower and clean yourself off, you know all this sort of stuff, right. And then, of course, he comes right into the shower with her afterwards.
0: Yeah, but, and then you know, complains about the soap that smells, makes him smell like Cleopatra.
1: I, that, I, that, that was my favorite line in the entire novel, actually. <laughs> it
0: was, it was one of mine, too, yeah. yeah. And then his goodbye letter to her finishes with, by the way, try this soap instead.
1: <laughs> it's almost like he was acknowledging, like, going, It's almost clueless going, like, you do realize that, you know, it's like I, 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 I like this girl. she knew it was a casual thing and whatnot, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, Yeah,
0: you're you're fucking your air pressure in your in your wheels is low. Make sure you sort that out before you travel <laughs> down past Georgia.
1: Yeah, like to him, like it just kind of got the opinion that it was just casual sex for him, you know, in that capacity. I think so,
0: yeah, yeah. But he, you know, he he underst- because she doesn't deliver too much of her backstory to him. She gives it all to us, and so his like her frailties. We don't know. Yeah, he doesn't problem. know how
1: damaged she. He yeah. she doesn't know how damaged. Uh, That's right. He doesn't know how damaged she is, you know, in that respect. You know, she's
0: not even that damaged, is she, Josh? I mean, come on.
1: No, but the way that Fleming wrote her is almost like he was putting yeah. a whole novel talking about how. Tiffany Case ended up in the way that he described. Yeah, her.
0: exactly. But like, uh, Tiffany Case is a far more interesting. He's waving at the
1: young girls of today and all their lo- and all their sexual mores and stuff like that, right?
0: Yeah. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, I think I mean you do a good job there, buddy. And uh, I think that kind of pulls her to an end, um, at least the plot summary side of things. Yeah. And- Bond
1: leaves. The, Bond leaves a letter. He contacts the FBI, and the FBI comes up with the local police, and uh, then she gets that stern lecture from the uh, f- from the local. A police detective there or the yeah. superintendent
0: yeah he's cool and though i kind of liked him I thought he was, was kinda all right
1: cool yeah he was a good fa- fatherly like individual you know and i think again this is a he was a flimmy mouthpiece for sure though in, the, in this cautionary tale
0: yeah he was a captain was a captain stoner
1: stoner yeah
0: yeah he was pretty cool um yeah. a state trooper who yeah 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 anyway yeah, <laughs> but, yeah he... uh,
1: and, 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 and then of course at, at the end of it you know uh, Vivian, she just gets on her Vespa and heads and heads down the highway towards Florida.
0: She does almost. I mean, it's it's more sunrise than sunset, but she drives into the sun, doesn't she?
1: She drives into the sun, yeah, ex- exactly.
0: Uh, with the uh, the crisp leaves of autumn just kind of crumbling behind her her rear wheel as she floats down the asphalt.
1: So so it's, it'll be the winter of plenty for her because she's heading to Florida, right? That's kind of a nod that kind of almost like a foreshadowing that she would end up in Florida because, you know, the leaves changing. That's, you know, when all the snowbirds are heading heading down there, right? The Canadian snowbirds in particular. So she's already
0: in particular, (laughs)
1: plus
0: in in Fleming stories, that's uh, Florida's where everybody goes to die.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Which is that good foreshadowing then? I don't know. Like if it's foreshadowing from, you know, the fall and and the, the visual in the visual symmetry of fall to winter, and we know that Florida is a place where people go to die. Is something worse going to happen to Vivian when she's in Florida? Maybe. Will she end up in the jaws of an alligator or something? Who knows? Could
0: be. But I know that because Fleming writes so, you know, is so distastefully and with such disregard for Florida and kind of how it's a prune juice capital of the world. And it's like, you know, uh, what is it? El Dolorado is what he refers to it as, El right? El
1: Dolorado, yeah. Because
0: that's where everybody goes. He... Um, I guess subconsciously maybe he's sending his character down there because he knows that the book is on its way to the shit pit.
1: <laughs> Most likely, yeah.
0: Anyway, shall we, uh, shall we take a break at this stage then, uh, BFG, and come back after a short break and, and get into our angle? I'm liking this.
1: Yeah, yeah the jury will adjourn and uh, we'll have our final deliberations.
0: our angles um we got the adversaries and allies to start josh you want to go for it
1: all right so adversaries well we got horror we got slugsy uh slugsy as we mentioned boris Karloff, and then you kind of have the nosferatu of uh of um horror there (laughs) i'll come right out of german expressionism basically Mm -hmm. Uh, then we have uh, for Mister Sanguetti, who we Mister who we don't see, but he does kind of have a, a looming presence over the whole affair. Uh, we've already classified Derek Malaby as kind of a of a villain. It's more of a twat, and more yeah. so than, than yeah. a villain.
0: Definitely um, more a twat.
1: Yeah, and then of course we have uh, the master race, uh, uh,
0: Kurt. Kurt there.
1: So villains wise, I, I, obviously the more. The more stereotypical or or, or archetypal um, Bond villains we have here, Slugsy and Horror, even though they're a bit, little bit of a, they have a bit of a bit of a kind of a, you know, a use wise guys kind of like uh Amer- British interpretation of American gangsters.
0: Yeah, plus they're um, they're really more henchmen than villains, aren't they?
1: They are. It's it's almost like Fleming scene. He's combined like old horror films and like some too, too many like James Cagney films into one role, base into two characters basically.
0: Which is why I was thinking that. It would have been nice if somehow the Spangled Mob was involved because they feel more like extensions of the Sanguinetti network. And, you know, I would have been happy with Sanguinetti being a villain in the background as long yeah. as as long as these guys were just kind of like part of something bigger than just, I don't know, a little New York crime yeah. crime syndicate, you know?
1: Yeah. But uh, yeah, horror with like his pale Nosferatu uh, aesthetics, and then you have... Uh, and those caps, those metal caps on his teeth, kind of like a neutered Jaws, I guess, if you want to compare it to the film version, mm-hmm. The Spy Who Loved Me. And then you have uh, Slugsy, this big Frankenstein mofo, who I just think is kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's, and the fact that, you know, that he all he has on his mind is rape, 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 and, and whatnot. And, and also he's a professional at his job at the same time. I think sometimes those can be a contradiction in terms, I think in terms of character development, when you have, when you kind of create good characters, like making characters overly, like, uh, lecherous and violent. And then combining that with being a professional, they kind of, there's, I think you got to have a good balance. And so this is why these guys come up a little bit over the top. Yeah. But at he least does. They make this, the last half of the narrative interesting, you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, he, he also suffers from alopecia, so he's got no hair anywhere on his body, which is another weird sort of character piece.
1: Another kind of defective trait, you, you know, you have like, uh, Dr. No with his heart on the left side of his chest and his claws, and you have uh, Goldfinger being a ginger. <laughs> and then you have... Uh,
0: sorry? Sorry, what? Defe- <laughs> Just defect? kidding.
1: Uh, gingers have no soul, then you know. Mm. Uh, and, well, no, you're the contradiction in terms. You definitely have soul. Thanks, buddy. You're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, but then you have, you know, like, Drax, you know, who's a German, but also is like a werewolf at the same time, and uh, who sucks his thumb, and then you have, like, the alopecia dude with um, uh, Slugsy there. So and, and, oh, and he's, don't, also don't forget he's also very sensitive about it. I like I like how he was kind of sensitive about it. So I do enjoy how Fleming gives them these nice little humanistic touches mm-hmm. um, to kind of, like, just to kind of avoid saying these guys are just basically uh, henchman one, henchman two, you know?
0: Yeah. So and he, I, kind of, he,
1: he yeah. has fun with it. So I, I appreciate that. Yeah. So v- villains-wise... Um, if I were to grade it before including the allies, I would definitely give the villains kind of like a 3.5 here, especially with like, and with, with the additional kind of non-violent villains of like Kurt and, uh, uh, and, and Derek kind of having like this Milton Crest kind of non super villain aspect to them, you know, although they don't hold a candle to Milton Crest though, but
0: no, he was one of your favorites, wasn't he?
1: He was. Yeah. He was great. Um, but just to continue so i, I two point five is where I was stand with with the ad with the addres, adversaries or adversaries in this case regarding my uh, notes <laughs> but I would say though that we'll come on with the allies uh, I, I liked um Viv- Viv- vivian's Scottish friend she seemed pretty nice and she wasn't in she wasn't in it a lot she was more of like a foil for um uh, Viv- 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 vivian's plot development right well her friend is getting married so there's no longer reason for her to be in England so she just heads back to Canada, right? Yeah. Then we also have like the Stornar, the 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 uh, the local um, police detective. Uh, he seemed like I, I kind of like he had, a, he had a bit of a presence, despite being a Fleming mouthpiece for uh, girls to be good, you know, and not be sluts. Even though the way that Fleming writes the book, it seems like that's the case. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, again, contradictory characters kind of get in the way of being able for me to kind of appreciate them in that capacity because they're kind of like, again, mouthpieces for the author and they stood out in in this novel a lot more than they have in other ones. And so as a whole, I give adversaries and allies, uh, I I give it a solid three.
0: Okay. Solid three. So you were leaning towards a 3.5, but you finished with three.
1: And just, just, just as an addendum here too, I want to add, the uh, the fancies were also pieces of work as well, and how the, the and how Mrs. Fancy, who liked who 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 basically Viv- Vivian seems to like at first, how, how she turns against her and reveals her true colors, and how Fancy kind of degrades from just being kind of like a dirty old man into like an absolute, mon- almost uh, a, a, a monstrous asshole, you know, before he leaves, um, is another example of an extra bit, bit of adversaries and allies. But again, I think just balancing things out and in terms of the story as a whole, I just think Adversaries and Allies is to me a three in, in this one.
0: Yeah, I mean, a three feels like the right mark, um, even though there are, for me, elements of much better character writing. Like, um, I, I kind of thought the fancies were an interesting couple and they they go through a lot to get what I can only surmise is a pretty marginal cut of whatever this insurance claim is going to be.
1: I guess you also want to add to in... And even though, like, I think his 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 presence should have added in a point five, I still kind of gave it a three. Bond is kind of an ally in this story too, right? He is, yeah. If if you if you base Vivian as the main character, then Bond <clears throat> would have been would end up being an ally more so than as the protagonist, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I can if I. I read the book waiting for Bond to show up, and I think maybe most Bond fans do, so it's never really like Vivian's the main character, although she is, but I don't know if that's a fault of the book or of the approach. Do you know what I mean? Like I don't want to say that Fleming didn't write her as a main character, because obviously he did, and she does you know, give us the story, but because it's a James Bond story, I'm waiting for Bond to show up, and I'm waiting for him to take over those scenes.
1: Again, it's about execution. If you're going to put a bullet into a gun and you want it to be effective, a, you have to have a target to hit. B, you have to hit the target. And C, don't put a blank in the bullet either, in the chamber yeah, either. Yeah, good shout. Right? Well, and don't use the, the bretta, they jam.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> right, Major mm-hmm. Boothroyd?
0: Correct. Um, well, the fancies, yeah, I thought they were pretty cool. Uh, Solhor, Sogzi Moran are pretty cool henchmen, it must be said. Like, if you think about the henchmen of the series, and if we can consider them henchmen of Sanguinetti instead of their own villains, then I think that they're they're up there for me among the the best because I think they're really interesting. Yeah, they're yeah, just like, they're just slime balls. But
1: if you think about cool. you know like upstate New York town like Troy, right? Like it's kind of like a Rochester kind of kind of place where. You know, like upstate New York and whatnot, with a decent community, but also strong organized crime, like in like in like like most of the eastern seaboard in the United States. And you kind of have like Sanguinetti, Troy being not like the biggest city in in, in the world. Um, you kind of have a feeling of like Sanguinetti keeping con- enforcing his, his his rule in in Troy through these two guys, right? Because how freaking scary they are. Yeah. Yeah. Well. So it kind of shows, you know, it kind of gives him a bit of. Uh, of an, of, of, of an edge as a, as a looming presence because, you know, if these two guys work for him, what's Sanguinetti like, you know?
0: that's a, Yeah, well, that's a funny thing. But, I mean, I, I kind of feel like Sanguinetti would be um, a, a rather positive, bright spark in a difficult situation. He seems like, I don't know, Sanguinetti just seems from the background to be kind of just a, an interesting... Um, he probably doesn't get his hands dirty very often, you know, I'd say he probably loves his life and, and just operates with these stooges on the side.
1: Oh, absolutely. He probably has like, le- le- like fronts and legit businesses and whatnot. And yeah. probably, probably connected to local politics in Troy and whatnot as well.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: the whole story, right? So yeah,
0: totally. Well, um, when these guys show up, Mr. Jones and Mr. Thompson are the names that they go by. Uh, and yeah that's, you know, that's part of their cover, right? But um, I just want to, uh, before we move away from them, I just want to read Fleming's description of um, uh, Saul Horror. Mr. Thompson, obviously the leader, was tall and thin, almost skeletal, and his skin had this gray, drowned look as if he always lived indoors. The black eyes were slow-moving, incurious, and the lips thin and purplish like an unstitched wound. When he spoke, there was a glint of grey silvery metal from his front teeth and i suppose they'd been cheaply capped with steel as i had heard was done in russia and japan the ears lay very flat and close to the bony rather box-shaped head and the stiff grayish black hair was cut so close to the skull that the skin showed whitely through it he was wearing a black sharp-looking single-breasted coat with shoulder-padded shoulders-padded square stovepipe trousers so narrow that the bones of his knees bulged through the material and a grey shirt buttoned up to the th- throat with no tie. His shoes were pointed in the Italian style of grey suede, su- <laughs> suede, suede. They and the clothes looked new. He was a frightening lizard of a man, and my skin crawled with fear of him.
1: It's almost like he puts on, to use a phrase from... Uh... Uh, Hannibal the series uh, a person suit you know like you mentioned Mm -hmm. him having like a brand new suit
0: that's right and and
1: whatnot right like because this this guy is just a creep right but because he has to do professional business well he's not going to wear like his I don't know like the rags or tunic or Boris Karloff like dress whatever he normally wears Mm -hmm. or or his vampire cape in this case and he's gonna he has to dress up like a human being right I kind of like how they use the name Thompson Um, just because Thompson automatically makes you think of, if you think of gangsters, the Thompson submachine gun, the The Tommy Tommy gun. gun, Yeah. Yeah. I get that. And I think they, I think they mentioned a submachine gun being used in the Speak shootout. So there was, I dare say they probably had a Tommy gun in classic gangster style, right?
0: I think you're right. Um, well, what I like about that character isn't just a description, which is hyperbolic. I mean, it's, it's over the top and it's, yeah, it's obviously a fucking vampire, but, um, His character or his behavior, sorry, throughout the rest of the story follows suit with that. He is sharp and pointed. He is very uh, observant and shrewd. And he he keeps his distance and is very clearly the leader, almost like he's just waiting for the moment to strike. And so I think some of these comparisons work well with the way he's drawn later in the the scenes of action too.
1: Yeah, his predatory kind of Mm. uh, – Feral alertness and whatnot, because in this vampiric kind of presence.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I mean, the, their banter, you know, is is very much leader and follower. And however, yes. however off the hook Slugsy is, he follows this guy's instructions pretty pretty closely. Anyways, yeah, speak, like speak, he always talks about,
1: He wants to have a piece, you know, of what's your yeah. name, and
0: yeah. and then
1: but but he's like, no, we wait till afterwards. And and so despite you know his urgent his his urgent desires and whatnot, uh, Slugsy always you know follows um, horror's lead.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, uh, let's just talk about Slugsy then for a minute. Uh, Where this man was deadly, the other was merely unpleasant, a short, moon-faced youth with wet, very pale blue eyes and wet, fat lips. His skin was very white, and he had that hideous disease of no hair, no eyebrows, no eyelashes, none on a head that was as polished as a billiard ball. I would have felt sorry for him if I hadn't been so frightened, particularly as he seemed to have a bad cold and began blowing his nose as soon as he got his oilskins off. Under him, under them he wore a black leather windcheater, grubby trousers, and those Mexican saddle-leather boots with straps that they wear in Texas. He looked a young monster, the sort that pulls wings off flies. And I desperately wished that I had dressed in clothes that didn't make me seem so terribly naked. Sure enough, he now finished blowing his nose and seemed to take me in for the first time. He looked me over, grinning delightedly. Then he walked all around me and came back and gave a long, low whistle. "'Say horror,' he winked at the other man. "'This is some bimbo.' Get an eye full of those knockers and a rear end to match. Jeez, what a dish. Scramble my eggs, baby, nice and wet, like mother makes. Otherwise, Papa spank. Right across that sweet little biscuit. Oh, boy. He's a dirty, dirty guy.
1: Oh, man. It's kind of funny at the same time because you're using such a retro term, you know, that, it, that it, you know, like I could think of much worse things he could say if this was written in a modern context. Oh, and yeah. The yeah. stuff that he's saying, you know, he's taking these kind of terms that we kind of heard gangsters use in all those old films that we kind of romanticized. And then he's taking these terms and he's taking like this, I will give some flaming credit to this. He's taken that of those noir aspects and he's making a real kind of hyperbolic uh, horror out of the whole horror film out of the whole aspect, you know?
0: Yeah, he totally is. And in a few moments when we talk about narrative, I'm going to draw your attention to um, some, what I think are, particularly coincidental, two coincidental references to Hitchcock's Psycho, which of course would have been a popular film at the time of writing this book because yes. there are some things that stand out for me and I'm, re- I'm really keen to share them with you. But anyway, f- yeah, finishing up then with Adversaries and Allies, Um, Derek is a total dick and, uh, Fleming writes him. I do think Fleming writes him with conviction though. Like I do think he does a good job writing the character of Derek. I think he knows these types of boys, these types of young men really well. You know, the, the privilege, the privilege. He knows, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think he does. I think he's, uh, writing a little bit of himself here in this character of Derek, the, you know, the, the suave or seemingly suave, but realistically pretty empty, um, schoolboy with uh, good academics and low street smarts, but enough to get a girl's pants off, you know? Yeah,
1: absolutely.
0: He's pretty slimy. He's uh, probably, uh, I mean, yeah, he's he's a forgettable character in the long run, but um, I just got a little section marked out here that I thought would be interesting to read when we're talking about Derek, okay? Um, Yeah, okay, so uh, this is them... um, after they've had sex under the tree, okay? Uh, We lay like that for long minutes. I watched the moonlight filtering down through the branches and tried to stop my tears. So that was it. The great moment. A moment I'd never have again. So now I was a woman and the girl was gone. And there had been no pleasure, only pain, like they all said. But there remained something. This man in my arms. I held him more tightly to me. I was his now, entirely his, and he was mine. He'd look after me. We belonged. Now, I would never be alone again. There were two of us. Derek kissed my wet cheek and scrambled to his feet. He held out his hands, and I pulled down my skirt, and he hauled me up. He looked into my face, and there was embarrassment in his half-smile. I hope it didn't hurt too much. No, but was it all right for you? Oh, yes, rather. He bent down and picked up his coat. He looked at his watch. I say, only a quarter of an hour for the train. We better get moving. Like, he's a total prat, right? Like, he really is.
1: Oh, rather. Uh, I, I love that rather. It
0: just, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Cause not like going, uh, I thought it was great or or, uh, or you were wonderful or something. You know, he's like, i rather say it was good or, you know, like mm. he. Uh, yeah, that was just. Then you have Kurt, though, right? And oh. I, I really like I really like this. Uh, we're talking about, you know, the how there's the Nazi symbolism with Kurt and whatnot. Right. The Aryan race kind of type and mechanic mechanized kind of individual this is a, this is from um, the chapter a bird with a, a wing down uh, chapter five. Cool go ahead. Uh, and Kurt remained so correct and our relationship on such a straightforward and even high-minded level that my appreh- apprehensions came to seem idiotic and more and more I accepted a comradely way of life that seemed not only a total res- totally respectable but also adult in the modern fashion. I was all the more confident because after about three months of this peaceful existence, Kurt, on his return from a visit to Germany, told me that he had became, become engaged. She was a childhood friend called Trude, and from all he told me, they were idly suited. She was the daughter of a Heidelberg professor of philosophy, and the placid eyes that stared out of the snapshots he showed me, and the gleaming braided hair and trim dirndl, were a living advertisement for Kinderkutsch Kutsch. And that's, of course, a reference to, like, uh, the whole Nazi Hitler youth, uh, you know, like Lieben's room, uh, you know, living space kind of thing, right? Yeah. Where it just seems like Germany is still, even though like it's no longer controlled by the Nazis, the people that live there, they're still under, according to Fleming in, in that respect, it's still Nazi Germany for all kinds of purposes. <laughs> yeah. They're still blonde, they're still Aryans, they still kind of like breed like rabbits with all like these, you know, with their blonde, blue eyedness and whatnot and now instead of like being Nazis, they're just like these sterile Art gallery attending phonies, basically, <laughs> uh-huh.
0: right? Yeah, who who moved their shoulders back and forth during Euro pop? <laughs> yes,
1: exactly.
0: Well, let me ask you this uh, about Kurt, hey, before we leave him, um, I'm I'm calling bullshit on Trude. I don't think she ever existed. I think this was what I think this is a sad, pathetic man who didn't have a woman wasn't engaged he just waited to build up the myth and talked so much to her about sex and all the great things that he was practicing in his discipline and his philosophy and his meditation to totally be the best lover in the world just so that he would get her interested her being viv and then i think he came in one night and was like oh she broke up with me uh and it was all a big staged plan because that's the same sort of dickish thing that you know guys would do
1: possibly yeah that's a very good point and i can see how you could you could construe that the only thing is, though, is that Kurt being, you know, working with this German newspaper and whatnot, seems like, I don't know, it just seems like if he wanted to, just I think because of his inexperience, in this point of view, I think he if he could have, if he really wanted her, he could have got her, you know, and given Viv- uh, Vivian's c- character, how she feels so confident and, and knows people right away. And then is never ever let down by them afterwards. <laughs>
0: <laughs> maybe you're I right. Just,
1: I just kind of see, like she, that just seems like two of a, of an elaborate show just to put on for her, you know?
0: Yeah, maybe. Okay, fair enough. But if this guy's really lonely, then you know, I can see I can see people doing it.
1: Like is this of like the Moriarty of like German of German hipsters. Like
0: I have no <laughs> idea. I can, you know, like he, yeah, he might be. He could be. Anyway, right. So my mark for adversaries and allies. Um, I also. Like, yeah, I didn't like those guys very much. Um, and I, I had to view them as uh, adversaries, although Kurt was kind of like, she didn't really regret Kurt very much, I don't think, but she was really pissed off at Derek. So I would this, say that. This again,
1: again, to me, though, this is a whole. I'm sorry, I'll let you continue, and then I'll say my...
0: I'll say my... Yeah, I was just going to say that uh, that they take away the adversaries, Mark, a little bit for me. But I, I was leaning towards a four with the adversaries because I really like Solhor and Morant. But the allies, uh, yeah, Bond is an ally, but the two state troopers are pretty cool, particularly that sort of paternal conversation that, that they have there at the end. Um, I'm going 3.5 with my uh, adversaries and allies, Mark.
1: Okay, fair enough. I think I'll stay. I'll think I'll stay on my solid three. I cool. in, in, in in that regard, I kind of find that like with the the thing with Kurt and, uh, um, within Derek is I find that they are typically part of the backstory, so yes, they're they not are. really allies or adversaries in terms of the of the novel itself as a whole. To me, the novel starts. When Slugsy and Moran, uh, when Slugsy and Horror show up at the, at the at the Dreamy Pines, that's to me like when the main narrative starts, right? If you're looking at it th- as, a, as a, a th- if you're looking at this angle, <laughs> no pun intended. No, actually, pun intended.
0: Pun intended.
1: Uh, You know, in regard to being a Bond story, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I I, I agree with you. Um, but I would still say 3.5. Like I would still say that um, those guys are almost good enough on their own to be among the best henchmen in the series and uh, it's just unfortunate that they don't have more interplay with bond like you know they have some snarky conversations and then just violence but it would have been good if if it if it was a bond story okay i guess look at it this way right if this was a james bond novel the whole time and they were like winton kid right yeah um, like I, I think they would they would definitely have shown more dynamic in their characters we would have seen them in different situations and different settings and i would have probably said that they're among the best henchmen in the series so far i really like their characters
1: hmm. I, I, it's true they do stand out as villain as characters that's for sure but anyway but the as i it's really interesting they they're just unfortunately in the wrong novel in my yeah, opinion yeah
0: i agree with you so let's move on to narrative
1: all right so narrative um we talked about the structure of the narrative how yeah, we basically First-person perspective through Vivian's uh, point of view. Uh, we get the first. We get the whole backstory of how she ended up at Dreamy Pines, her failed relationships uh, um, with uh, Derek and then with with Kurt, and how she was let down by these two by these two men. And then this kind of just put her in again, beginning at it as an outcast, and then being sent to England to reform, and then returning to Canada, an outcast from where she was in Europe, and then deciding to, you know, leave Canada altogether and go all the way down south, you know? And then, of course, on the way down, you know, during her, her Vespa tour of uh, upstate New York, you know, she ends up at Dreamy Pines where all this goes down. And she, again, um, she's put in the most worst situation she can possibly imagine in comparison to her previous two bad relationships, I guess. And she is liberated, thankfully, from a very terrible fate. Uh, but at the same time, even though... Um, this, she encounters a, uh, a hero who saves her, and he seems like, you know, in comparison to the other, he's a saint. Uh, she's still, again, <laughs> dropped off the side of the road and, you know, is forced to continue on. So uh, that's it's a very straightforward type t- 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 uh, narrative. I think it was like with better dialogue and characterization or something. I think if I always me- heard that Quentin Tarantino wanted to write a Bond film. And I think this would be one that he could adapt in a really interesting way, and possibly take the the, uh, the approach that Fleming did about this being a, a cautionary tale, and actually making Vivian into like a strong female character. You know, like I think I think because because Fleming is very uh, uh, sorry Fleming Tarantino is a very feminist filmmaker, and I was just thinking reading this, going like you because when you, when you mentioned Hitchcock, right, uh, in, in your comparison mm-hmm. uh, or parallel to you know with like in terms which you'll get into. Yeah, I think uh, that this script, if if uh, Tarantino decided to do, do do the Bond film that he's always wanted to make, he could make a really good work out of uh, this spy who loved me, the novel.
0: I agree with you, and I agree with you without knowing as much, uh, or without perhaps appreciating as much of Tarantino's craft as you as you do, because I think that there are enough of those interesting threads of character development. And I think he would have to change some things about Viv's backstory, but I think that he could make her, as you say, like a, 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 a more uh, interesting heroine. And I think that uh, th- there's a lot of scope for violence and for, for cinematography. There's a lot of really strong visuals in this novel.
1: If they ever did decide to like uh this Bayou Lemby again into, a, into like part of the Eon productions... Um, if they went, of, if they went at the with a different angle um, in connection to the storyline, I think it could be really interesting.
0: It could be, but I, I don't think they will. Well, they they can now that it's out of uh, copyright in some places, but no, I don't think uh, I, I don't think that they're they're going to do that because they're still close enough to what Fleming wanted, and Fleming didn't want this story adapted. So the title was all that they were given, and that's what they stuck to.
1: And that's why we got a remake of You Only Live Twice, basically for the uh, film version.
0: Yeah, correct. Uh, anyway, right. So narrative, you got a mark then for what you want to talk about?
1: Uh, yeah. So just as a whole, that I found that the narrative approach, you know, it was an interesting twist. I liked how he included that this was part of the Spectre investigation. So it kind of gives a continuity. Regardless of all these short stories and whatnot, they do have a, co- a continuity. And The Spy Who Loved Me, they do have a continuity to them that connects to the whole, as we discussed earlier, the Fleming sweep, right? And yeah. the overall narrative. And this is... I just I just feel that is narratively is this a good lead to lead into the spy who to the unimagined secret service because spoiler alert I've seen that film I know what happens to it I know that the book is pretty I heard that the book is pretty close to the film version so is this is this Vivian Michelle like is this the same Bond you know that we can is this believably the same James Bond that we've seen you know after Thunderball who was you know who was besotted with Domino you know and then all of a sudden with, with this Vivian girl. And then leading into Tracy and on, on Magic Secret Service, um, I I don't, I don't I don't know like I just find the continuity between this and the spy who and uh, the Under Magic Secret Service just seems, I I just don't think it fits you know this feels like it's a couple of novels before.
0: Hmm. Well, I I don't know I mean I kind of see it a little bit differently I kind of feel as though uh, and this is not me defending this part of the narrative but what you're talking about I think is reflected in this passage I'm going to read I think that this in some places does set bond up for honor majesty's secret service because um towards the end of the book um this guy they haven't slept together yet but um obviously oh i think yeah she's kissed him for being there and looking after her but there's been you know nothing's been consummated or anything this is when bond is away to his um his own cabin right and the plan is for them to uh or for her to sleep on the camp bed type thing that he's made for her and then um, he'll be there if she needs him type, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so yes, this reflects Vivian's uh, her kind of what need to be rescued, her need to be saved, and her need for love, as we've seen all through the story. But it also, I think, says something about what Fleming's trying to do with the character of Bond. So this is Vivian's point of view. I stood for a moment looking at the closed door, and then I went and brushed my teeth and got ready for bed. I looked at myself in the mirror. I looked like hell. Washed out. No makeup. Deep circles under my eyes. What a day. And now this. I mustn't lose him. I mustn't let him go. But I knew in my heart that I had to. He would go on alone and I'd have to too. No woman had ever held this man. None ever would. He was a solitary. A man who walked alone and kept his heart to himself. He would hate involvement, I sighed. All right. I'd play it that way. I'd let him go. I wouldn't cry when he did. Not even afterwards. Wasn't I the girl who had decided to operate without a heart? So I think that you know some of these, and there are a few of them, three at least I've marked. I think some of these little passages are meant for readers to think. Yeah, Bond is definitely uh, on his own again, and Bond is definitely mm-hmm. when he when he writes that letter, he, he's not. He's never going to settle down. Like, I think this is Fleming getting ready for the big story.
1: Uh, okay, I, I guess I, I, I I'm I, I'm a bit uh, turned in my opinion in that in that regard. And now that I think about it too one could view that um vivian's um you know all the bad luck she's had you know with men in her life and whatnot and she does i guess you could argue she does show a bit of maturity and experience from that situation because she knows given bond's job and what he does that this is not a for love kind of thing right and and i think that maybe that's why she and she enjoyed it and embraced it a bit more and maybe bond felt maybe in, in his own kind of sensitive way that she wanted this you know in, in that respect she wanted t- to be held the way, in, in, in that regard and it was kind of like this one moment in this one in, you know in when this one single moment in the universe where these two people you know they bonded in this capacity and and maybe I'm going maybe I'm being, being a bit too highfalutin and romanticized about it but I think that's kind of the angle that Fleming is going for here
0: yeah I mean <clears throat> I guess it's still up for debate we haven't read the next novel but I just think there are touches here of wanting to invert expectation from the reader or for the reader and I think yeah. that Fleming is wanting to give us a story of a fling so that we get a little surprised or a little impressed by what's coming around the corner you know
1: although there is a problematic aspect to Bonds like while well, well, she's like you know after her hard day of, of, of violence and, and, and insanity and chaos and you know he tells her go get a shower and then he joins her in the shower right and,
0: mm-hmm. uh, but that's not necessarily love that's just lust
1: that's, it's true, it's lust. And, but it's not very subtle about it either. He's going like, uh, you have to learn how to watch a man too or something like that, right? Yeah. It's...
0: A line only Connery could could state.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it kind of reminded me of that scene that was uh, from Thunderball with Patricia Fearing, right, in, in the film version. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, yeah, but, against uh, against the window, yeah.
1: Against the window, yeah. And, and just how the character interactions were kind of similar in that respect.
0: All right, well... Um, going back to the,
1: uh, the overall, though, I, I get the narrative... Uh, I'm, i I'm again like it wasn't terrible it wasn't great it was just kind of straightforward and I did like the, the angle kind of that filming approach or the ambition of the approach I guess you could say yeah he need, he deserves and
0: credit for an ambition he, he,
1: he does but again he put a blank in the chamber he, he, he so in this respect i'm I'm again I'm kind of st- i'm'm st- I'm, I'm, I'm three again on this
0: okay right and is three a score that you feel is right or is it one that's because it's in the middle <laughs> you're just settling on
1: no i i just feel like it's i just feel yeah. in this case it it, it, it it's right in right. comparison in comparison to to the other ones
0: yeah i mean i, I would like to give this more but um basically let me let me talk you through it I'll, I'll be rather quick uh i made some notes here anyway on narrative because this is the one that i really had to think about you know um okay. over the other ones Basically, um, yeah, we, we've already talked about how that first section just dragged on, and I thought it wasn't overly necessary. There's some pretty cliche, predictable parts about love in maturity, and there's some oversights I thought about Canadians and, and French Canadians, particularly, like their relationships with uh, Engle, the, the English part of Canada. I, I didn't think it, – it, it felt researched, not experienced. Do you know what I mean?
1: I, don't, I Exactly, yeah. It was like – yeah, he was dropping a lot of just yeah. – like
0: Facts. Mm-hmm. Whereas when he writes about like uh, the Cayman Islanders um, quarrel, like I felt like that was lived, and I, I there's a big difference between the way that the ethnicity comes through in this story. It feels more research, like a library job. Whereas before, I felt like Fleming knew what he was talking about. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um right there. I, I mean, I know this has something to do with the setting, but in terms of the narrative, I think. Like framing a lot of the action in this restricted setting really does work for it. I, I think it helps build up the tension in those scenes of the hotel. Mm-hmm. Um, the, sus- the suspense in that third act is, is pretty palpable some places. And um, unfortunately, the situation is just a little too coincidental to be pulled off properly. Yes, but uh, what, not
1: that the, not that Fleming novels regard, you know, rely on coincidence at all.
0: Yeah. And <laughs> no, of course they do. And I, I mean, they they should, you know, they're just adventure stories. But um, we've come to see Fleming writing well and writing good. So we expect it more, don't we? Uh, <clears throat> right. When Bond arrives at the hotel, hmm, this is something I want to talk to you about because this info dump about why he's there, and it is an info dump. It, it seems really misplaced, and it's almost just – well, in the story, it's to tell Vivian all the stuff that was, you know, he was doing leading her up, leading up to him meeting her. But it felt more like, as I've already said, that was the story that Fleming wanted to actually tell in this, in this book and that he couldn't do it because he had to tell a story about a woman. And – I just feel like there was that conflict at that section. It, it sounded really interesting to me, but I would have enjoyed the story more if it was if she told Bond some of her backstory, like the, like Domino did with the player Cigarette Hero. You know, yeah. if, if, if she had been a character in the story that Bond info-dumped info and shared with Bond some of her story about men, that would have been far more engaging to me.
1: Yes. How about even this? what if the first part, what if the book was like in three sections? What if the first part of the book dealt with Bond's operations in Toronto and moving, going down to New York state. And then you have Vivian's interactions in her life and then how the two collide together at, at, at the Dreamy Pines motel.
0: Yeah. I mean, something like that would work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Because we want Bond, right? And it seems to me that Fleming wants Bond in this story too, but he just has to get this other stuff out of the way. Unfortunately, going going first person from a girl's point of view doesn't really develop the female character, I think, with any great richness because I don't find her or her story particularly engaging. And I don't think the general reader is going to be interested to read about uh, a French-Canadian woman who's rather middle class, who is, I think, middle class, and has secure jobs traveling abroad like it's just kind of soft and not really interesting but anyway i I, I do kind of admire in some ways that approach you know even if i don't really understand why fleming does it but you know it isn't dynamic female character that we're getting from any of this first part of the novel like she's a little more interesting in the third part but that's just because she's reactionary i don't think it's because she is particularly great you know what i mean
1: yeah, absolutely. She's not, yeah, I agree. She's not a great character. Like, I, I did feel sympathy for her, but I think that's, that's just because of, you know, uh, just being a compassionate person, you know, like, or, you know, an empathetic. Like, you just, you obviously have to feel pity for her in her situation, right?
0: Of course, yeah. I mean, yeah, and I think we do some in some ways. Anyway, there are a couple little touches, though, that I did like in the narrative, like uh, how the radio is used. Uh, to be that sort of transport of link back to her revelries. Like I thought that was cool. Like she hears a song, Oh, that reminds me of Derek. And then here a tear comes to her eye. I mean, it's a little bit, it's a little bit romance, novel stuff like uh, soft porn, but it, it, it does work. And then, and then it happens again uh, when she hears another song and it makes her think of, uh, of Kurt, you know, I just think that works.
1: That's a good point. I, that whole thing about it's very cinematic in that way, right? Like you have Mm -hmm. like that triggering, Music or advertisement, and then and that reminds her of this and brings her to that flashback, right?
0: Yeah. So and in, the songs are of a how, nice way of, it, of making it, the reader think that these characters have experienced something too.
1: It's definitely making me think about the narrative a little bit more now, just in terms of, I guess, its simplicity kind of overwhelmed me a little bit. And maybe I'm seeing a bit more of a, a, little, a little more craft in it than I realized. That's a really good point. Well, one um, thing I wanted to mention is, though, is in the front, I think this is the first time in a Bond novel. Where, you know how, Fle- how Fleming, you know, when we first meet a villain or some really colorful character in, in the novels, he has this great description of them, right? That's so vivid and really captures your attention. Well, this is the first, this is the protagonist, uh, Vivian's first uh, impression of Bond. And when we, when we first meet Bond in, this, in, the, in the novel, uh, one thing you can say about Fleming, you know, is, is that um, Bond is not a bland hero. He's not a bland character at all. And he, he has such a presence when he appears in the storyline and Fleming describes it with that, with, with that detail that's worthy of that, of that, of that presence. Um, At first glance, I inwardly groaned, God, it's another of them. He stood there so quiet and controlled and somehow with the same quality of deadliness as the others. And he, and he wore the uniform that the films make one associate with gangsters, a dark blue belted raincoat, and a soft black hat pulled rather far down. He was good-looking in a dark, rather cruel way, and a scar showed whitely down his left cheek. I quickly put my hand up to hide my nakedness. Then he smiled, and suddenly I thought I might be all right. And just the whole thing about, you know, the scar on his left cheek, and automatically we know as Bond readers that, oh, this is Bond, right? Yeah, yeah. Without a doubt, because that's the confirmation, because we don't know that Bond, when Bond's going to come in, and, like, if you're not a great – if you're not an astute reader, you know, perceptive in that way, the, the, the scar on the left cheek could easily be missed and you may still be waiting for Bond to come in when you don't realize that he's already there.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. And it's, I'm, it's I'm, nice until, until, of
1: course, he says, you know, I'm Bond, James Bond.
0: <laughs> yeah, when he says that, the cat's out of the bag.
1: Yeah, pretty much. And that he's English as well.
0: Yes, of course. Um,
1: but, but the scar on the left cheek, you know, just that like Bond himself – is his own visual image, just like all the colorful villains that Fleming has written. Mm-hmm. So I just, I just like to have the storyline kind of reintroduce Bond as a visual character to the reader, you know? Yeah. I, so, so I give it props for that.
0: Right. Well, I, I'm going to leave my um, Hitchcockian comments until I get to setting, but um, or locales. But something that I thought was interesting, I wondered if you noticed it as well. Uh, in narrative, is how although only the and this is a Presumption. Only the silver teeth of Saul Horror were picked up for movie adaptation. I did think that this bit um, early in the book where Vivian's describing how she and Derek would spend their time together uh, might have got picked up in a film um, early on. Just tell me if you think this sounds like the start of From Russia with Love. Um, Okay. He took me to a fearfully smart place, the Hotel de Paris, and we had smoked salmon, which cost extra, and roast chicken and ice cream. And then he hired an electric canoe from the boathouse next door, and we chugged sedately upriver and under Maidenhead Bridge and found a little backwater just this side of Cookham Lake, where Derek rammed the canoe firing under the branches. Mm. He had brought a portable gramophone with him, and I scrambled down to his end of the canoe, and we sat and later lay side by side and listened to the records and watched a small... You know what I mean? Like That to me sounds like the beginning of uh, Sylvia Trench and, uh, and Connery's bond in From Russia With Love.
1: You could add too that perhaps there's a nod to uh to to Vivien and Derek with the couple that that goes by on the boat on the on the river. You know, I think some guy was saying that he couldn't operate the boat properly or something like that and, and then Connery makes some offhanded comment.
0: Oh, does he? I don't remember that.
1: Yeah. There's like there's like a couple going by. So it's kinda of like, you know, that's the type of couple that you would see a young couple going down that, that river, right? So
0: mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: down off. I guess it's the estuary is that where is where they are.
0: Yeah. Anyway, I just uh, I just thought that was that was notable, but it's not important. I just thought it was funny, uh, and maybe maybe that fits better in in a uh, how how the books are adapted into the films episode later on when we're all done this. But yeah. Okay. So that's me. Uh, last question about the narrative. Um, page one sixty four. Something interesting comes up, and I wonder if you if your memory serves you correctly. But uh, this is Bond. Uh, during the fight, okay, um, I wiped the wound as clean as I could and got out uh, methylate and a big band-aid. The cut wasn't deep, but there would soon be a bad bruise. He said, sorry, Viv, I made a rather hash of that round. I thought he had too. I said, why didn't you just shoot them down? They were sitting ducks with those sets in their hands. He said curtly, never been able to in cold blood. Now, Bond, that, I mean, that tells us Bond has never killed in cold blood, but didn't he kill in cold blood already in this series?
1: He, I, I think he he killed the um that Japanese agent on his first assignment. He mentions that.
0: Well, I know that he kills uh he, he kills stingrays in cold blood, but has, has the literary bond never killed another human in cold in cold blood?
1: It seems like it's been, it's mostly been in defense usually, right? I mean, he's placed explosives and 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 whatnot and done things, and I'm sure he's killed in cold blood. Maybe he was kind of lying, like just just kind of not yeah, trying to scare her.
0: Probably good shout. Maybe that's exactly what he was trying to do anyway yeah, because
1: it's 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 in the dialogue where that's mentioned not not implicitly in the writing mm-hmm. and sorry in the writing itself and it's through vivian's perspective right so why would fleming switch over and and go to bonds you know you know uh his go just all of a sudden jump into his head right that'd be kind of jarring in a narrative kind of sense so
0: yeah fair observation well at, at any rate josh um my view of the narrative is that it, it's it's staggering at the beginning and the midsection. I'm a little more interested in the middle section. I like parts of what's going on at this motel, but really until Bond shows up, there's no speed, there's no velocity to this. And I don't need a story that's uh, that's speedy, but I want a story that's engaging. And because we're all just waiting for Bond to show up, um, we need more impressive character writing than what he gives her to keep us ready or to keep us involved until she yeah, shows up, you know,
1: exactly. And it's like the threat of, you know, of, of her, of her being raped or killed or whatever. It doesn't even, it's because we're waiting for bond that we're almost kind of like meh to it, you know? Yeah.
0: Because we know it's not going to happen. And, um, that's that, right? Anyway, yeah. I went to, I went for a three as well. So that's, that's me and you on threes for narrative, even though I felt like, uh, part of it deserved a one, because it just wasn't interesting. There were some parts of it that were really good at the end, and so on balance, go for a three, which isn't a terrible mark, but it certainly isn't, you know, one of our more impressive ratings.
1: So, the girl.
0: Yeah. Uh, do you want me to do this quick? I'll go girl quick, and then I'll let you say what you want. But for me, uh, you know, Vivian is a is a woman that we're meant to feel sorry for and attracted to sexually, which really isn't a great combination, I don't think, for a liberating female voice, like pity, and then want to sleep with. Like, that's not good, you know? Sexually up for it, but emotionally weak? That's not a liberating female character. That's
1: Fleming's uh, style, though, right? It
0: is, I know, but even Pussy Galore, right? Emotionally weak when we heard the story, but she's really sexually... you know enlightened but now nah, she needs she needs to be saved comforted protected and she doesn't ultimately learn this is the third relationship she's had like a jumpsuit and a vespa doesn't turn her into a strong woman it just turns yeah, her into a woman who is as she says at the beginning running away and so i you know there there to me is a conflict with what she says and what she means and like she's not really as powerful or as confident as as she claims to be and she isn't as learned and as experienced or as comfortable in her learning as she wants to be. And she wants Bond to save her. She wants the magic penis. And she's just a little tougher because she accepts it as a one-night thing and travels off into the sunset on a horse, you know, or a Vespa. And, yeah, I mean, she, she is very sexualized and she is really hot, I think. She's clearly an object of desire and she's attractively written she's got you know i mean from a male gaze point of view really nice movement nice hair nice body blah 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 but i i'm i'm not really into the weakness of her character like i was no. hoping, i was hoping for something a little tougher and we didn't get it so boring i went no i went 2.5 2.5 for me
1: yeah there was no moxie or no sass with her whatsoever she wasn't I, I think Fleming had an opportunity here to make her a little interesting, but he disappointingly went back to his old, you know, his old roots all the time when when, when this happens. And yes, yeah. I, I always, I always, and again, like Vivian, I get, I, I'm waiting for for this brilliant, you know, I think, I think I kind of, I don't know, I guess, I kind of see myself as Vivian when it comes to reading a Fleming novel, where I feel like I'm going to, be, I'm, I'm going to, oh, this female character, she's a great, strong female character, like. She has all these attributes and she's tough and strong and, and whatnot. And where does this strength come from? And oh, she was, she, oh, she's a damaged woman. And yeah, you let me yeah. down again. I, yeah. You know, like you are Derek Malaby in Fleming, and I am your Vivian, like again yeah. and again and again.
0: Exactly. I agree with you a hundred percent. Like where are her resources? What are her skills? She doesn't have any. Like, I mean, we know that uh, Pussy Galore has some skills, even though she wasn't a great character in the books, I didn't think. um, She has some skills. And we know that Tiffany Case is very skilled at what she does. Like this woman just, she's useless with guns and weapons. She can't trust her emotions. She... She has good looks, um, and she's obviously friendly, but she's described as a naive Canadian and like I, I don't see where her resources are. Like, what does she have that's going to get her out of a situation? Yeah. You know, if she's Canadian, give her a hockey stick or something. She she's got she's got courage, but she doesn't really have any resolution. And for me, eh, all in all, given that we've had a hundred pages of backstory at least. We could have had something better in terms of a female protagonist because I hate to say it, I am Canadian and I know Canada's got full of rich history and I'm proud of that, but I don't think that her backstory would interest many people.
1: No, definitely not. Uh, as a as a Canadian Bond girl, she was definitely a fail.
0: <laughs> she was a fail. Anyway, yeah, I want I want to argue lower, that
1: but... I would argue that Canadian actress, uh, a Canadian actress, and she played a Canadian secret agent. Uh, Stana Katic at the end of Quantum of Solace was a better Canadian Bond girl than Vivian <laughs> Michelle.
0: Well, okay. What? Um, whatever. I went two point five. I thought even about going two, but yeah, I don't 2. know. Two point
1: five is fair, and that's exactly what I put.
0: Oh, okay. Well, cool, right? But well. I
1: had I have an alt. But I, in this case here, if you look at if you look at Vivian as the protagonist, right? Who is the girl of the story? You know, who is the the other character in this regard and You could say Bond is kind of the girl of this story, you know?
0: No, you couldn't. You can't. You can't say that.
1: That argument died right at liftoff, didn't it? It just crashed, exploded on (laughs) the That's right.
0: That that just blew up, man.
1: Oh, the humanity. Oh, the humanity. It's the Hindenburg all over again. (laughs) All right. So, yeah, 2.5. We're agreement on there.
0: Right. Hang on. Let me uh, update our scores here. So, right. The Spy Who Loved Me uh okay sorry we've been talking i haven't done that yeah so we went 2.5 each for girls did we yeah yes and uh we went three on narrative yes and you went uh what did you do for adversaries you went 3.3 you I, went three.
1: I, I, I just three
0: yeah and i went 3.5 i liked it a little bit more than you did because of uh, horror and slugsy moran okay cool um locations um yeah I got a couple of excerpts here. I just want to read out, and I think uh, this will kind of put it into perspective for you why I, I think that Hitchcock is all over this book. Um, I, first of all, okay, no, I'll put it into perspective first. I'll give you my marks, and then I'll then I'll just read those little bits. I like the isolation of the motel. I think that this is a really good setting. I really really like it. Um, Dreamy Pines Motor Court at the Adirondacks. It's a beautiful part of upstate, you know, of the eastern. Part of the United States, upstate New York, so lovely. lovely. Um, You've been down, driven through that way with me before on our way down to uh, Massachusetts, taking the the um, uh, the scenic route on our way through uh, the Berkshires and all of that stuff. So you know the environment; it's really pretty. But yes, uh, I like the motor court. I like or I like the the motel, the the interior settings, the kitchen the the lodges even the pine forests which are kind of oppressive to the character's point of view I, I like all of that stuff and um, although I like it and I would definitely not have objected to seeing more of the story set there I felt like the um, the England stuff, the London stuff, uh, I, I, uh, I couldn't care less. I, I really couldn't care less. I felt that was a drag because I wasn't interested, perhaps, in those narrative points as much about her backstory. So, I didn't think Fleming really made much of an attempt to bring those other settings to life. Like, I was actually more interested in the movies, the the, the cinema box where they were, you know, a bit <laughs> have sex. Like, that's and that's obviously. Well, yeah, okay, fine, but that tells me, you know what i'm more interested in i guess <laughs> but anyway um yeah the story takes place on friday the 13th you know which is pretty cool in its own little way it's it's stupid but it plays with all of the horror that we're getting and, and the va- the vampires and the frankenstein stuff that's clearly all over the place here um flame fleming you know he doesn't waste much time either in in outlining the isolation of the place you know i've got a couple quotes here he says um the nearest living soul, as far as I knew, was 10 miles up the up the road, you know? Like, there's a very deliberate attempt to make us see that she's alone and that things could happen to her, right? And within that, on page three, or on my page three, anyway, I don't know what it is with you, but... Um, uh, Fleming writes that uh, blah, 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 blah. it's a vast expanse of mountains, lakes and pine forests which form most of the northern territory of New York State now, that's just a throwaway comment but again it, it decorates the isolation of where she is right and to play on the horror theme I want to read you this bit okay this is why I think that Fleming is tapping into the psycho imagery which would have been such a popular film in 1961 as he was writing 62 when this was published right I'm game okay cheers Um, it's not a lot but uh, okay right here we go Um, really early here into the story my watch said it was nearly 7 o'clock I switched on the radio and while I listened to WOKO frightening its audience about the storm power lines down the Hudson River rising dangerously at Glens Falls and remember Psycho takes place in a storm Um, that's why Marion goes into the hotel in the first place because she can't see through the pouring rain a fallen elm blocking Route Nine at Saratoga Springs. Flood warnings at Mechanicville. I strapped a bit of cardboard over the broken window pane and scotch tape, and got a cloth and bucket and mopped up the pool of water on the floor. Then I ran across the short covered way to the cabins out back and went into Mine Number Nine on the right-hand side towards the lake and took off my clothes and had a cold shower. A shower in a motel room in a storm. You had to run across yeah. a covered space, you know. My white terrylene shirt was smudged from my fall, and I washed it and hung it up to dry. I had already forgotten my chastisement by the storm and the fact that I'd behaved like a silly goose, and my heart was singing again with the prospect of my solitary evening and of being on my way the next day. On an impulse, I put on the best I had in my tiny wardrobe, my black velvet Toreador pants with the rather indecent gold zip down the seat, itself most unchastely tight, and, not bothering with a bra, my golden thread Camelot sweater with the wide floppy turtleneck. Now, I admired myself in the in the mirror, blah, blah, blah. Vivian, uh, you know, makes the point that she's not wearing a bra, which is a strange thing to just put out there. But if you think about Psycho, if you think about Psycho, um, Marion's character wears a black bra, which we see pretty uh, deliberately on the part of Hitchcock. And I think, of course, that's that's meant to say that although she's done something bad, You know, that's the evil side of her personality, but she's wearing a bright white shirt because she wants to contain this idea of innocence, right? And so both characters wearing a black shirt, both references to bras, both have showers at a motel, in a storm, uh, Mm -hmm. in an isolated area. And then if I can keep this going on, later in the novel, after the revelry ends of uh, Kurt and Derek, we get this description. It was still blowing hard, and the pine trees clashed fiercely outside my black window. The moon, filtering through high, scudding clouds, lit up the two high squares of glass at each end of the room and shone eerily through the thin, red-patterned curtains. When the moon went behind the clouds, the blocks of blood-red photographer's light went dark, and there was only the meagre pool of yellow from the oil lamp. Without the brightness of electricity, there was a nasty little movie-set feeling about the oblong room. The corners were dark, and the room seemed to be waiting for a director to call people out of the shadows and tell them what to do. I tried not to be nervous, and da-da-da, it goes on and on. I just think that there's definitely a set here that's being constructed imaginarily, or through imagination in his mind. You know, he's got this vision in his mind of what he wants to create. And how can you not think of Psycho when you read that? No
1: doubt he's seen Psycho as well. It was 1960 Psycho
0: came out, right? Yeah, 1960, yeah.
1: So he would have seen that film most likely given the circles that he traveled in knowing Noel Coward. And I think Noel Coward knew uh, Alfred Hitchcock and I'm sure Fleming knew Alfred Hitchcock in some capacity.
0: Maybe. Brockles could
1: have ind- the- Brockles could have introduced him for sure.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, maybe. Anyway, um, yeah, that, that's just what I wanted to say. Um I would have gone for higher because I really like the the woods and I like the outdoor scenes and I like the, the kitchen and, the, you know, kind of, we get a really, really, really good feeling inside, not a good feeling, but a good feeling of what this place is like, you know, inside and around the motel, the um, dreamy, dreamy pines. But overall, there's just not enough of it. And the other settings, lo- locations that we get are just sparsely decorated and not even plot devices. It just kind of drags on, on, you know drags on with the description of the passages i just want to get over so but there's also the car in the lake which is exactly what happens in psycho 2 i um yeah i'm going 3.5
1: i will say though is that I, personally i have a bit of a and you may have this too with the whole dreamy pines thing i think what made it even more unsettling and creepy uh is it's is it's the reminder of 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 a certain experience that we had at a similar motel in New, in New England. You want to tell that, uh, that story? Was, yeah, two words, my friend, Bonnie Bray.
0: Bonnie Bray, buddy. Why don't you go ahead and uh, and draw, draw a comparison?
1: A couple of years ago, we went down to the Berkshires.
0: 11 years ago.
1: We went down to the Berkshires to watch um, John Williams and the Boston Pops Orchestra. We're driving through the Berkshires, and while we're there, we spend our nights at uh, Bonnie Bonnie Bray cabins and exactly like how Fleming described the Jimmy Pines motel with its little cabins for the, for each of the hotel the, of the motel rooms and whatnot, and the isolation of the place and, and, and whatnot. Now, while Bonnie Bray wasn't as isolated and it didn't have any creepy, um, uh, monstrous figures, you know, from horror films l- 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 lurking around, it did have bed bugs.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you you saw them. <laughs> I didn't.
1: Oh yeah, I guarantee you, I probably got bitten by something and had some like poison in my in my uh, blood for about a. Because I was very I was very sick when I came home for a while after that trip.
0: Yeah, you definitely did. Yeah. Anyway. So. Right. So, what did you give the locations? I I, I was at three
1: point five just because of Dreamy Pines and the Andes and driving through the United States and whatnot. I was going back to Free your eyes only, um, the the short story for your eyes only within that collection. And we have this whole thing where Bond crosses the border and goes over into Vermont and whatnot, right? So, I got to. So, this is a, to me, this is the experience that, that I think Fleming has been in upstate New York. And I think he really likes that area because he writes about it a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why that part of the book came, became so vivid in terms of the, the locations. Is, you know, it's this New England um, camping ground, um, uh, modern America aspect that he puts to it that I think really pops out in the in, in the storyline
0: i think so, you're right and he this, yeah and this... for that i
1: give it a point i go from three to 3.5
0: okay well the saratoga springs was quite a popular part of diamonds are forever too
1: yeah he really likes upstate new york or rural america he likes right he writes with that a lot actually
0: all right so we're pretty much right on par so far man um we are. i'm you really surprised really with this because i thought you would your opinions would be a little more polarizing given what you had Uh, foreshadowed at the beginning but good okay let's move on to equipment Um, there's not there's not really a lot of equipment in this story Um, you might because you're usually pretty good at this you might tap into the resourcefulness of some things that I just let me you know let pass on by but I thought that the Vespa was cool and I, I you know although it's a rather weak or cliched I suppose symbol of freedom and liberty from her previous experiences and from her rather shackled past of poor decisions um it's a cool it's a cool thing and you know
1: she just keeps putting along that's what it's symbolic
0: yeah it is it's it it is pretty cool um and i like how it's i kind of like how the moment with the vespa is is discussed as well um i had it marked in here i'll see if i can find it but as i'm looking for it uh i think that uh the kitchen utensils, the guns are used, but really there's not a hell of a lot more around. Um, Bond's Ford Thunderbird, which I was really happy to see because the Ford Thunderbird's an awesome car. So far, by my tally, this is the coolest car that he's driven in the United States.
1: Yeah, I, w- I, w- I wonder if, uh, if if Felix had any input in the selection of that particular car.
0: Hmm, I don't know, maybe he had. Um, we, did, we certainly don't even get... We don't even get a mention of Felix in his big info drop. So,
1: well, Vivian doesn't know who Felix is, right? So, and why, why would we?
0: Because he sits there in the cafe and tells her everything else.
1: True, true. I, I guess the, the Fleming could have could have put Felix in there, but I think Felix was was only brought out of retirement for the Thunderball operation, right? I think he just went back to the Pinkertons afterwards.
0: Yeah, I would so, think so.
1: Yeah, so just I guess I guess Fleming kind of found that you know there's no real point of throwing uh felix in there i'm not going to use him anyways so
0: mm-hmm. oh and uh, in amongst the vespa stuff there's a real clumsy um pigeonholed talk about mechanics so i'll read this bit for you i suddenly fell in love that this is her in london on like, having decided to cruise around america and work from north to south and get a job right Yes. I suddenly fell in love with the idea of a motor scooter. At first it seemed ridiculous, the idea of taking on the great transcontinental highways with such a tiny machine. But the thought of being out in the open air, doing around 100 miles to the gallon, not having to worry about garages, traveling light, and let's admit it, being something of a sensation wherever I went, made up my mind, and the Hammersmith dealer did the rest. All right Now now listen to this bit, okay? Because this is her, I think, and Fleming more directly, desperately trying to make her cool and tough and hard and, and something, <laughs> something like a Tiffany case, right? Yep. I, I knew something about machinery. Every North American child is brought up with motor cars and I weighed up the attractions of the little 125cc model and the sturdier, faster, 150cc Grand Sport. Of course, I plumped for the sporty one with its marvelous acceleration and top speed of nearly 60. It would only do around 80 miles to the gallon compared with the smaller one's 100. But I feel like I'm reading fucking Car and Driver magazine.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's like, a Top Gear episode or something like yeah yeah it, it, it's just yeah like that was totally out of character and I'm like okay it's like for me I feel like he's trying to write this character from a female perspective but at some points he just goes back to his own perspective and that's why I find it not quite uh, authentic in my opinion his mm. uh his his perspective of, uh, of her.
0: Yeah. yeah it's pretty weird anyway he, he she gets it shipped over to Montreal but not before we hear about um the the deluxe luxury package that she she gets <laughs> so you know so I signed up for it. I bought a leopard skin cover for the seat and a spare wheel, racy looking deluxe wheel trims, a rear view, rear mirror, a luggage rack, white saddlebags that went beautifully with the silver finish of the body, a Perspex sports windscreen and a white crash helmet that made me feel like Pat Moss. The dealer gave me some ideas about clothes. I went to a store, bought white overalls, plenty of zips, big goggles, a soft fur around the edges and a rather dashing pair of lined black kid motorcycling gloves. Like
1: I, I'm, i i picturing right now Anthony Boucher reading this book right at this moment and just look <laughs> a very constipated look on his face, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah, like Fleming. Fleming can't think of anything. Like, okay, this is a story about a woman who obviously doesn't do anything. So this is as masculine and as cool as I can possibly make her. If she's not using her boobs, she can only like use this, right? <laughs> anyway, right? That's that's me uh, on equipment. Uh, I'm just going to end it there. I went uh, two for equipment. <laughs>
1: Yeah, the Vespa's the Vespa was kind of cool in a kind of a very Euro girl cliche Audrey Hepburn kind of way. Um, you know, if you think of you know like of uh, Roman Holiday, right? So yeah, yeah. I, I would add Walter PPK, Tommy Gun. <laughs> I have Dishes. the guns.
0: I mentioned the guns. Dishes dishes
1: she was throwing dishes at one point uh,
0: and an ice pick she has an ice pick up her down her pants the ice
1: pick yeah that was kind of, the, the 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 ice pick was kind of cool that i wish that would went to I, I kind of give her i could give her points on that she had some moxie in that situation
0: mm-hmm.
1: um silver cap teep, i guess i guess it's kind of an equipment i don't know
0: is it um, he never uses it as equipment
1: n- no he doesn't. he doesn't he doesn't that's like really saying
0: does. that that's like saying that the other guy's um, hairlessness is is a piece of equipment
1: yeah, the Thunderbird, the Vespa, yeah, that part was kind of neat. Uh, Bond had his waltzer and he did good with that, but it was mostly his own daring do that got them out of that situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would argue, as a whole, two is a pretty fair um, <laughs> point system. So I'm just going to be a little bit more. I'm going to be a little bit more provocative and <laughs> give equipment to one.
0: Okay, <laughs> give it a one. Well, here's a question for you. Can I? Can I? Uh... Um, can i influence your decision by arguing that the um uh what is it called uh hang on oh yeah there we go the french soap that she uses um on bond as a piece of equipment
1: it just make him smell like cleopatra yeah so i guess yeah, i guess you I'll, I'll i'll give it i'll give it uh you know yeah 1.5 fine
0: because bond then suggests a different type of soap remember
1: that's right, and then it, and then it kind of brought his character back, you know, and his all his little eccentricities.
0: Mm-hmm. I did think yeah. that was funny. Um, yeah. His his letter says, <laughs> "P.S. Your tire pressures are too high for the south." <laughs> <laughs> way to break a girl's heart. Oh, by the way, try this soap. It smells better. <laughs> Guer- Guer- Guerlain's Fleur Fleur de instead of Camé, and and that's the soap that was used in. Um, one of the two soaps that was used in Dr. Knows, wasn't it? In uh, the layer?
1: I, I think so. I can't quite recall. But you're th- probably right. I
0: think it is. I'm not sure. But I think that it is. Anyway. Don't
1: you think with his idiosyncrasies, you know, in terms of his breakfast and his and his food that he likes and certain... Is that, we're not talking just about like drink and cigars and other macho stuff. We're talking about like food preparation and soaps and all this kind of stuff. And don't you think Bond would have been a fabulous gay man? Like, oh, yeah yeah you know like i could see a gay james bond working you know
0: oh totally yeah well i don't know
1: (laughs) i don't know if tom hiddleston wants to play that angle
0: (laughs) okay right let's do the totals buddy on the spy who loved me um for angle pretty much on the mark i just went half a point at bellevue with a 3.5 we were both for threes on narrative both for 2.5s on girls Uh, one of the worst girls in the series, Um, both 3.5s on locales. I went two for equipment, and you went 1.5. So that brings me to a total of 14.5 for the novel, (laughs) and it brings you to a total of 13.5. It's not very often that I like a book a little bit more than you, but it seems that this is one that that has been the case for.
1: Yeah, it's a provocative book in that respect.
0: Well, if 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 for no other reason, it got us uh, inverting our expectations.
1: It really did. And it inverted us and then reinverted them again. It did, because it, 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 it I think your expectations really play play with you when you read a story that's so unorthodox based on what you've seen before, you know? Mm-hmm. And so you don't really trust your initial uh, impression. And I think that's your whole point about what we said earlier about how you want to let some of the story digest a little for you, you know? Like,
0: make yeah. your palate
1: adapt to it, right? And then, then you kind of get your impressions a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And then you know, you hear another person's viewpoint, like the whole discourse we're having right now. And then they kind of reflect, you know, in your own mind, your your own biases and prejudices and how you can view things differently from someone else. So I, that's what I really like. I really like about this whole uh, thing is that yes, you are discussing a novel and we're putting our, our own, pers- our, 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 our own arguments about how we feel about it. But at the same time, I think we're having a collaboration together, a kind of an intellectual uh, union of ideas that, it creates a a secondary experience of the novel for us, if you know what I mean.
0: Yeah, that's, well, it's better put than I certainly could. Um, I agree with you. And I think that although we went out objective at the start, um, we need to say and confirm that so far in both of our opinions, according to our scoring index and I think our conversation, though its entertainment factor was high enough, its pedigree fell low and The Spy Who Loved Me is indeed the lowest-ranked novel for either of us on this list so far.
1: There's camp, and then there's forced camp, in my opinion.
0: Although this is the lowest-ranking novel, I'm not a hundred percent sure that when we're all finished, it will be the worst story because there are some short stories that you know weren't as good as this novel. So it'll be interesting how it's all split up when we when we go to finish it. And and I also don't think that yeah, it, I don't think that this is an unrecommendable book.
1: No, 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 not at all. I think I, I, I would definitely, if, if I know people who like kind of like more noir kind of crime fiction or whatever and want a different angle to look at Bond, I I would I would definitely recommend it. it as we said, like it's an experience. It's a pretty niche market though. It doesn't exactly, it is a niche market, but it does pay off and it, it doesn't pay off as, as, as it should. But at the same time, it's a worthwhile addition, it's a worthwhile um, addition to Fleming's um, uh, library and uh, you know it's controversial in the respects of its quality, but I I, I still think that it's worthy of discussion and uh, it's it's I think it's a book that if you're into Fleming and you want to get into him outside of the whole Bond mystique, uh, it's 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 one worth reading to kind of see him uh, experiment uh, as a writer. You know just, just like as if you would read Quo in the Free Rise Only collection.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you make a good case worth and I, and I reading, agree with you. I
1: guess it's my final point.
0: Yeah. It's worth reading. Yeah. Maybe not worth celebrating, but, but but worth reading. It's interesting. I'm glad that we put it into its proper context as a uh, something, something of a experiment for Fleming. And I think that does make it interesting. And so it, it has a safe place, I think. It's just not a favorite spot for me. It'll
1: be interesting to, to yeah, it'll be interesting also to kind of compare, you know, for uh, Spy Who Loved Me. Uh, the free rise only collection. And I, and I also, I guess the living daylights collection as well, right? Like yeah, when we get to it and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because again, these are more exper- experiments outside of the regular, uh, serial novel form, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, buddy, look, it's, uh, it's been a blast. Uh, I look forward to our next chat on, on our majesty's secret service. Anything else you want to say before we say sayonara?
1: I think uh, we're exactly where we need to be for now and uh, I think we said what needed to be said We, the the horse as I mentioned has been eviscerated all over the uh, <laughs> the, uh-huh. the highway
0: yeah yeah it has indeed it kind of reminds me of uh, there's a dead rabbit out on the road there uh, that I pass every day when I take my daughter out for a oh. walk in the buggy oh no I mean the, the rabbit would have got hit quickly and died quickly but it's been like it's been decaying like for, for fucking weeks now and uh uh, it, it's it's a real sight, but um, your mention of the eviscerated horse just made me think of that, and I, and I don't think for a moment that this story is as bad as an eviscerated horse or a decayed rabbit, but uh, I think if we carry on our conversation much past this, Mark, we might be stretching into that territory.
1: Yes, exactly. I'll say adieu.
0: Okay, buddy. Have a good one. We'll see you next month for On Our Majesty's Secret Service. Alright.